we're talking about my favorite movie of the year, Top Gun Maverick. I'm joined by my co-host and cousin, Josh. Josh, say hi. Yeah, um, I like the BU edition. That's a good one. You know, like, it's a little goofy. I think it's probably a little, like, you know, alarming as you, like, just tune in. You're like, oh, my God, my ear. But I like the intent. <laughs> I like that McConaughey is always going to be part of the show, maybe. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, this is what I wanted when I introduced that movie. So I, I'm just glad that I won. Nice. Yeah, I hid that bit from you. I had that hidden up my sleeve. I got a couple <laughs> tricks this, this week. Hidden up my sleeve. <laughs> you like tattooed it on your arm. Like, don't forget the view noise. <laughs> Wrote it in Sharpie. Yeah. <laughs> your boss like, what does that mean? <laughs> it's a bet thing about peace, man. It's okay. <laughs> Well, we're back here this week talking about Top Gun Maverick. As I said, my pick for movie of the year. I'm just going to come out right out of the gate and say it. Um, Josh, I know that you have some feelings about this movie, but before we dive into that, um, I think it's important that we talk about the original Top Gun briefly. Have you seen it? Uh, I haven't. I know the bits. I know the volleyball scene. You know, I mm-hmm. know the playing. I'm not going to finish this song for copyright infringements, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, you know the mean of like, Wow, these guys really like each other, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a movie of its time. It's oh, very, very much, so. very much every frame of that movie feels like an '80s film. Um, there's some cool nostalgia to it, but uh, to me, it feels kind of like an overbloated soap opera, and the technology just wasn't there to make it feel realistic like this movie does, which we'll most we'll certainly get into. Um, so it yeah, feels, that's kind of briefly. It feels a lot like Rocky Four. I mean, both kind of a similar time frame, but also the like pro-America sentiment of like, look at us go, look at our achievements and our pioneering and our craft, and like, <laughs> you know, obviously different things of like physical violence and boxing versus you know the war in, in Top Gun. But a similar idea kind of permeates '80s movies. I think the more you look at them, of like the pro-America sentiment of like, look at our our heroes, and we want to showcase them. Yeah, I mean, you think about kind of what was going on around the world. It was much easier to point your finger at an enemy, kind of, I feel, with the whole communism downfall thing. Um, So we kind of had, like, some animosity as a country built up still. Um, That's the thing about the original Top Gun. It's very, very low stakes. It's probably the last 20 minutes are the only parts that really involve a dogfight. The rest of the movie is, I guess character development and plot points um, in the loosest sense. But I think that's kind of all I really want to talk about because I know that movie holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts. And while it may not be for me and it's not for everybody, it does, it has its purpose. And we wouldn't have this movie now if we didn't have that. So I did want to say, it is interesting to me that like that movie is made by a British man. Mm-hmm. You know, like it is such a pro-America sentiment from everything I've seen. And yet it's directed by, I was like, oh, hello, sweet, Tony Scott. Like, I just wonder, like, sometimes you need an outsider to critique American culture, but he seemed to be like, nah, we diving into it. We got true romance and, like, Enemy of the State and Man on Fire and, like, Beverly Hills yeah. Cop 2. So, like, the it's interesting. Scout. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he did have kind of, like, a chameleon-type approach to that. Um, but his style is so controversial or so confrontational in the way that he cuts and color grades. He's just very like sporadic and like you can feel a lot of frantic energy with Tony's movies, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this movie is really kind of more restrained and mature. But again, we'll get into that later. This was his uh, second This was his second feature real quick. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, 
Tony Scott? Yeah, it goes a movie called The Hunger, then Top Gun, and the Beverly Hills Cop two a year later. Hmm. Anyways. Yeah. That's a it's a pretty big movie you get for your second movie. But yeah, anyways. What is uh my next question on here is like what's your Tom Cruise Top Gun history? I know that you don't have much with Top Gun, but I mean everybody's got a Tom Cruise history. <laughs> um I don't some really know where to, uh, some religions more than others. Uh, I don't know where to start with like a Tom Cruise history because it feels like he's been an evervescent like part of my life. You know, like you and I are both born, you're in the 90s, I'm in the 2000s born, but like he's just been there ever since, you know. And, and since he, before. Even, yeah, even before that with Risky Business and everything. But like the cultural touchstones that he has of that Risky Business, you know that when you're a kid growing up, at least I did. They're like, and then slide. You know, I knew that. And it's just an odd thing to think about. He's kind of like Tom Brady in a sense, but both in the sense of like there are these two monoliths in their respective cultures that are just here, and it feels like they've always been here. Like I can't imagine a movie world without Tom Cruise, even though he's not always present. Um, mm-hmm. I would say it's only in the last couple years, though, that I've really gotten to appreciate what he was. And I say that because, you know, not as just like a, a person, but as an actor. You know, like when we watched, which was one of the Otter movie going experiences, Eyes Wide Shut together in your apartment <laughs> with Great like movie. burgers. Yeah, we got some burgers yeah. and watched Eyes Wide Shut as, you know, men do. Yeah, um, it's two men do. <laughs> with, with your girlfriend in the room and being like, man, this is pretty this cool, huh? Yeah. But you know what? That's why I love you guys because you guys were totally in on the movie. So that works. Oh, for yeah. You. But like, I guess what I'm going for here is like in that movie, he's great. You know, yeah. like he's really, really good. Right. And in other performances of that era, you see Tom Cruise as a really, really dynamic and capable actor. And you don't see that as much anymore. And it's kind of a shame. I hope later in life he kind of gets back to that. But like when you go back go back and watch movies like Magnolia or, you know, Eyes Wide Shut or Born on the Fourth of July, you really stand back and be like, oh, this dude is like in a way he's kind of like Stallone. Where Stallone after Rocky in this movie, you see this dramatic potential that he has. Cruz capitalized on it far more than Stallone ever did, but you mm-hmm. see that, and then you see that divulge into the action hero. Yeah, I think it's a really, really pivotal point, and you brought up a movie that I one love, and I think is a, a really big point in his career, Magnolia. That was like kind of his big push to be like, all right, this is the year that I win my Oscar, yeah. and then I think after that, it was now I need to become the most bankable and relevant guy for the rest of my life there was a real like clear choice if you look at his filmography to kind of steer away from dramatic roles and then kind of go into you know some comedies and obviously the mission impossible movies are incredible in their scope if you dislike them that's fine but you have to admire the craft um and his commitment to those movies is absolutely absurd but there was definitely a clear conscious choice around mid to late 90s to start to lean into more of those action roles, which I, I'm cool with. I, I don't really have a problem with that. Um, however, I think that the choices then became very much so hit or miss. You know, right. I mean, we can, we're going to go over a decade later. So I don't really want to start naming off movies, but, you know, Rock of Ages, The Mummy, there, 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 there are some, <laughs> there's some stinkers in there as time goes on. And it, it kind of made me think of the same thing because he's doing a lot more in this movie, um, as we'll get into. And, and making more choices that more dramatic choices that require him to i don't know if it requires him to work harder but um, more. He's, he's emoting he, he's, far he's, more. He's emoting more and maverick's not a role that you know has a lot of dialogue so it is a lot of emoting and using 
your face to um, express those emotions, whether it's, you know, the scene at uh, Iceman's funeral, which is, which is pound profound, one of his best acting scenes ever. My or opinion. just the scene with Iceman in general. Like, it is not just like, it's, it's him saying, what, maybe 10 lines? Mm-hmm. You know, and in, in the Mission Impossibles, I would say the character is tested, but Tom Cruise as an actor is not really being asked to be like, hey, man, you really got to, like, sell this scene of, like, <laughs> yeah. Ethan Hunt is really sad. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like, like that doesn't exist. They're just like, hey, here's his ex-wife in like every right. movie. Where, yeah. whereas, which I hate. I hate yes. that plot point in those movies. Whereas Cruz is just continually tested in this movie to like do a lot with so little, and it really makes you appreciate what he can be when he really tries and gets a great script. Exactly. Um, with that being said, I think that we're probably good to dive in on Top Gun. Let's really get into this thing here. I just wanted to do one more thing real quick. Yeah, hit me with it. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but the other part of Cruise I've come to appreciate is his dedication to movies. You know, mm-hmm. we're increasingly going to an era of the, the streamers and the TV and the movie stars switch, flip-flopping and going to Apple and Netflix and all these other things. Cruise will never do that. No. Um, I don't know if it's <laughs> – I don't know why – uh, in some ways, I think it's maybe a bad thing for him because there's a lot of know. projects. But I, 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 I don't I, know. Yeah, but I appreciate he wants to give movie theater audiences something to go see again and again and again. He makes a, a franchise like Mission Impossible continually interesting, which is almost mm-hmm. impossible for an eighth movie. I mean, like, like outside of Marvel movies, how many movies have eight movies in? You know, right. like, man, I'm still interested in where this is going, or like, I need to go see this. I want to go see this. Mm-hmm. And and he's just as one of these people that is a real champion for film and, and IMAX and all these other things. And he's weird and he's eccentric <laughs> and he's a very odd fella. But yeah. boy, he is, I think, an important person that might keep film going uh, as an experience alive. Yeah, he, he's committed to the idea of spectacle and exhibition, right? Like, mm-hmm. did you, when you saw this, did you get the Tom Cruise message before the movie? I didn't know. Oh, okay. Well, there's but a I've little heard about like, it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's a little like stinger that plays before the movie of Tom Cruise talking about like all the work that went into the production for for Top Gun and how they're so honored to be able to serve, like basically serve you. You know, it, it, it seems like he almost sounds like an indentured servant, like <laughs> to the audience. It's it's very like strange the way that he goes about it. But yeah, he is very committed to spectacle exhibition and the experience of going to the movies um, that he fought tooth and nail to have this not go to streaming and it's Netflix and I believe it was HBO max or Apple. Take your pick. Um, we're in the running to try and get the streaming rights and they were shot down instantly. And the thing is like, when we talk about this movie, I don't know of any other movie star where you would say Tom Cruise shut down the fact that Netflix and Apple want to buy the movie. You know what I mean? Like his fingerprints are over, all over this m- movie. Like this is his baby. This is his love child. This is as much a Joseph Kaczynski and um, Christopher McGuire and everybody else project as it is a Tom Cruise project. You know, he was in the editing room. He was making cinematography decisions. I'm sure he had input on the script, you know? So he, he really, really, doubled down on this one and i think that it was it's obviously a complete success it's the you know 18th grossest high movie of all time so and i think to some extent it's also worth noting that like he cherry picked i think people from this cast and his career to work on this movie you know like he knew kaczynski from oblivion 
You know, he knows. We're gonna Kamala. get into that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't yeah. want to spoil it. You know, I don't want to get all the good. Yeah, come on, baby. <laughs> but like, he is a palpable force in this movie, and it is really, really nice to see like a true movie star because I think he's maybe the only one left. It's it's debatable. I mean, we can get into that later too. But um, let's hop into production. So, dating back to 1990, while on a press run for Days of Thunder, Cruz pushed back on the idea of a sequel to Top Gun, calling it "quote unquote" irresponsible. Flash forward to 2010, Christopher McQuarrie wrote Usual Suspects, Way the Gun, um, virtually every Tom Cruise movie post-2012. He's all in that uh, Mission Impossible, yeah. He's all in that, all up in it. Uh, he was approached to write a sequel to Top Gun, which saw Cruise in a smaller role. Um, and then the following year, Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stentz were brought in, along with Peter Craig. And this is one thing I'll say real quick. Just reading the production history of this movie, it has no business being as good as it is. <laughs> Scott, well, like, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Tony Scott said about a sequel, this world fascinated me because it's so different from what it was originally, but I don't want to do a remake. I don't want to do a reinvention. I want to do a whole new movie. What were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say, like, it is no right to be this good 36 years after its sequel. Like, this is a historic sequel in terms of how long in between Mm-hmm. And the production hell, you know, this went through. I remember there were early talks of like, Tom Maverick's gonna fight drones. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, I mean, that's interesting, I guess. But but a two-hour movie about like, like yeah, man versus machine. I, I you right. know, like, and then for it to survive all of this and COVID, and yeah. to come out on top, it's just like a tremendous feat. Yeah. Um, by 2012, the movie was in advanced development and a script was finalized. Scott, director of the original Top Gun, loads of other good movies you've probably seen, like True Romance, Last Boy Scout, Crimson Tide, which is a banger, Man on Fire, absolute banger, unstoppable, underrated. Just a really, really, um, like I said earlier, f- frenetic. Unstoppable is really good, too. Just a, a guy whose movies never set, sat still. Um, we're always moving. So just a really fascinating mind, unfortunately, as we'll get into um no longer with us scott won the wanted the film to focus on the end of the dogfighting era and the implementation of drones which you just talked about yeah. in modern area warfare um scott and Cruz had apparently scouted several naval air stations jesus i can't read today <laughs> i stayed up till 2 2 a.m reading the power broker last night and 12 font so. and, it, and it broke you is what we found <laughs> bro- out apparently yeah. <laughs> they'd scouted several naval air stations um, they landed on Fallon, which is in Nevada. Sadly, in August 2012, Tony Scott took his own life, uh, and the movie was put on a hold. So I just want to touch base. Within the span of two years, this movie was just a snowball of an idea to being put into an advanced development to losing it, the head, one of the heads of the creative team, unfortunately, in a you know, really tragic way forever. Mm-hmm. This movie still got made and is still awesome. Like, that's just crazy to me to think about. Uh, I, I don't I don't understand. But anyways, Kilmer, Cruz, and Bruckheimer were, Bruckheimer, I don't think that name needs an introduction. Insert big blockbuster here. Uh, we're I mean, you, really you know him. You know him. <laughs> yeah. Even if you, like, are blind to movies, you're like, I don't know who that is. Uh, you've probably seen Pirates of the Caribbean. Well, we'll talk about a, a franchise that's just gone downhill with each, with each movie. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kilmer, Cruz, and Bruckheimer, Bruckheimer wanted to move on with the project, so we move forward to 2017. Uh, like we talked about earlier, Cruz and his company have basically cherry-picked their crew, guys. We got Joseph Kaczynski, who we worked on with Oblivion. Have you seen that? 
No, I remember one or two when it kind of came out, and, and then I remember it got like review bombed, and I was like, "Ooh." I think it's gotten a kind of a reappraisal. I've heard a lot of good things about it, but I've never seen it. I or liked the, the the set design of that. everything I kind of saw about it. I was like, "This is interesting," but I, I was also mm-hmm. kind of like, "Another space movie, <laughs> yeah. where, where the guy's like, I get a, I get a stab, like you know, like I, I was just like, I don't know if I need to go see this." Eric Warren Singer's brought in to work on the script, who worked with Kaczynski on Only the Brave. Um, Tom Cruise's professional muse, Christopher McQuarrie, who we hit on earlier, is brought in to work on the script with Aaron Kruger and Singer. They're given the final credits on the screenplay. So Peter Craig and Zach Stentz all just get a story by credit. <laughs> <laughs> so the three people who originally came up with it are basically just put on the sidelines which is really funny to me because that's the name zach stents that i remember hearing about like because he was working on the flash tv show for a while and he was writing like really good episodes he wrote x-men first class the first thor movie and i was like oh boy like this might be a guy i like to keep an eye out on you know and then just it just all fell apart pretty quickly <laughs> yeah apparently. Um, i don't know if it what it was but like he, he's writing now uh jurassic world camp creatoris uh which is an animated jurassic uh, park show uh, wow. He was involved in uh, a Booster Gold movie, uh, a reboot of Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, both of those are just like, I don't think ever going to get made. <laughs> yeah. So he, I'll he, tell you what, his Jurassic, his Jurassic Park show can only be better than Jurassic World Dominion. I mean, it looks like it's got a couple Emmys, actually. That movie is a heaping <laughs> pile of dinosaur shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold on. It's got two wins and one nomination. Okay, it won Annie Awards. That's like uh, the animation like thing the jigs. Okay. Oh really? Good job, Zach Stentz. <laughs> I mean you didn't get you didn't get any proceeds from one of the biggest movies of the year, if not the decade. Oh, I'm, sure but... he, I'm sure he got something kicked his way. Yeah, but not as much. <laughs> no. No. no, the rest of these guys are swimming in, in tubs of money. And he's like, ah, I'm swimming in dinosaur toys. <laughs> he's swimming in tubs of pennies. <laughs> McQuarrie said that they ignored most of the first film. Good idea. Um, Kaczynski on the sequel script. Maverick in that film was in his early 20s and now he's in his 50s. It had to be a different journey, but it was important. It was a journey of a man at a different part in his life. We think of Top Gun as an action film, but I think of it as a drama. It has some incredible action scenes in it, but there's a drama at the center of it. Now, real quickly. That's not true. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not true for the first movie, but it is most certainly true for the film that he made. Like, that is that, is that movie. There's a, the training scenes which are in the original Top Gun, kind of permeate into this movie. But the stakes are so much higher and like the characters feel so much more lived in and real. Like Anthony Edwards' character of Goose dies in the original, but I think his death and the impact of his death is felt far more realistically in like a real way in the sequel, which is kind of rare. It's weird, but anyways... It's a real um, appraisal, like a re-real appraisal, I guess, of like what that franchise is. And it's something that like I think with a new set of eyes, and this is something that I honestly think, back to Stallone, that he did really well, where you look at where Rocky ended, you know, with like Rocky <laughs> You know, like like Rocky Four has a robot in it that yeah. Paulie's probably having sex with. It's a very goofy movie. Yeah, but Ryan Coogler sees that nugget of, of Creed's death, and that bursts Creed. And, I thought I thought a lot about Creed when I saw this movie. Yeah, and there's this real way that you can look back at these old old franchises if you really want to dig them up, which that's perilous. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a way you can do that and go like, okay, this like afterthought here, what can we do with that? How can we transform that? 
what is the drama here? Just take it literally and go like, okay, Tom Cruise lost his best friend in that movie. Mm-hmm. 30 years later, what is that still like? What is this character doing? Like with right. so many of these action movies, credits roll and we go, okay, the hero does something else, but we don't know. And there's like usually dramatic weight to that character. And if you can re-explore that later down the road with a new set of eyes, you can get movies like this or Creed. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, during filming for Mission Impossible Fallout, Kaczynski talked with Cruz about ideas for the sequel. One was the emotional core of Mavic and Rooster's strained relationship set to the backdrop of a dangerous mission. The other being the Dark Star program and Maverick's role in its secrecy. I'm glad that the Dark Star, Dark Star was just an opening sequence. I don't. It's really pretty baller. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. The part where uh, I think it's Hondo says he's the fastest man alive, and then that shot of him just literally burning, <laughs> burning up the atmosphere after. Oh. Yeah, I think that's the one. Loop. That's that's the one why Zach Stentz wrote because he was working on the Flash at the same time. He's like, <laughs> "Let me just borrow this one." <laughs> so I put it over here. <laughs> Copy paste. All right, Maverick said it now, and well, as well as Barry Allen. Yeah, and now we're gonna get into like some some funny weird crew stuff and like fun facts. Awesome. Um, <laughs> talking, you talking about like him like basically like cherry picking or how we were both saying it's just like him having all the control. This is a funny bit to me. Glenn Powell, Nicholas Holt, and Miles Teller were all privately flown to Cruz's home for chemistry tests for the role of Rooster, ultimately going to Teller. Who the fuck does that? <laughs> that is a one-of-one one decision, man, as I break out my term. It is Tom Brady where it's like, yeah, he's just going to fly like... Yeah. Like, I'm just going to fly Antonio Brown out. We're going to work out once, and all of a sudden he's on my team. Like, Right. And, like, any other person does that, it comes across as, like... And it still does a little bit. It comes across as kind of campy and cheesy. But it worked. and It's for the best, honestly. It's like, for the best, yeah. Like, and the other thing is, I think that is part of Tom Cruise and his old-school mentality. Not just, like, movies, but the way you make them. Where mm-hmm. I bet back in the olden days, it was the sort of thing of where the star has more saying power in what happens. You know, like in the 60s when Paul Newman's kind of coming of age, you do have him more responsible behind the wheel. I think the director and the, uh, the writer are definitely a big part of it. But we've really entered a new auteur era where the director is so much the driving force or the writer, whoever it may be, is right. dictating all the decisions. And the star is just like, and Adam Driver, you know, like right. like when White Noise comes out, it's not like, oh, a new Adam Driver movie. It's a new Noah Baumbach movie. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's to see Cruz like take the initiative be like, Joseph, no, 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 no. I know this. I know. I know you're writing and directing this movie partly, but yeah. I won't say of who I, who I work with, and, and that's just something that's kind of like, it's ballsy, right? But it it works. And then, like, you look at the filmography of Kaczynski. It's like he's made maybe like five percent of what Cruz has made. It's mm-hmm. so he does know more. He does have more experience. It's it's baffling. But yeah, yeah. Uh, here's a little fun fact for you. Austin Butler was originally in the running for the role of Rooster, but dropped out to do Elvis. Good call. Pro- probably a good call on his part. Yeah, I-, I can't picture him as Rooster. I wanted to say this. I think everything worked out the way it should. Um, do you think, real quick, do you think yeah. Austin Butler would have talked like Elvis in Top Gun Maverick? <laughs> Talk to my dad. <laughs> Some people won't put me in jail for the way I was moving. For the way I was flying. <laughs> um, but I think everything worked out for the best because I know Tyler was running for Elvis too. Like funny enough, yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, so I think he sh- he definitely got Rooster right, and I-, I can't imagine Austin Butler in this movie because he he just looks kind of baby faced, and you need Rooster to look like a little like he's got to be a man, you know. Like yeah. and I don't say that as Austin Butler is not a man. The dude's like thirty, right? But like the the body 
weight that that tower can put on here, the, how much he looks like Anthony Edwards, you know, the started. CGI mustache. Yeah, I guess. It's not a CGI. What is this? Justice League? No, like, I'm not making that a part of that was touched up. I'm pretty really? Sure. Yeah, he couldn't like really grow a full mustache. Oh, that's tough. That's yeah. <laughs> tough break. Tough break. I thought for there was a, was a Justice League reference there. Um, no. But I can't also imagine Tower being Elvis because I think you do need the. I think Tower is great at the vulnerability parts of it, and we'll get into that. But like. Butler has such a, a way of doing that in Elvis. They, they both have kind of the opposite, right? Like, I think Teller has that boyish, or um, Butler has that boyish charm and like that, like, big enigma energy to him. I don't think Teller has that explosivity, explosivity, but he has something of like this, you know, he has these scars on his face when he got in this act, when he got in an accident when he was younger. He has this very kind of brooding way of, emoting himself he's not a big talker but he does a great job of serving scenes he never gets blown off the screen you watch whiplash he's just as like prevalent on screen as jk simmons is you watch the scenes with him and cruise in this he's just as prevalent on the scene as in the scene as tom cruise is he's very good at serving a scene you know what i mean and i think that a lot of people could get lost up and lost up in the thought of i'm working with tom cruise we're doing a scene together i've watched this guy since i was a little kid i don't think he thinks that way no I, he he is it's the philly energy coming through i think he's, he's he likes to tackle challenges yeah <laughs> i would also say that i think go the, birds yeah <laughs> beat it hard in this year let's go uh but i would also say that like i think you need rooster to be old i and not like old old but there is this comment of like he got held back four years which means he's four years ahead of everyone else mm. and teller is is five years older than butler and he just has more of an air of like someone who has their stuff together more, not as much emotionally, but just like he just feels like a guy, like a dude. Yeah, he does. But he does. Butler, you know, he's a great looking 30 year old. Um, mm-hmm. but, and he can work in those scenes as a 20 year old Elvis and you believe it. Right. Whereas if you told me that he's 35 year old rooster or 33 year old rooster who's like really, you know, gone through the death of his mother and his father and really struggled his whole life, I don't know if I'd buy it as much because he's such a pretty boy. Exactly. Which is why He's I think boy, boy thing to him. Boy which is why charm. I think Powell works so well in this movie because he has that same kind of thing going for him. Obviously, less dynamic, but he can pull off, you know, Hangman because he's very much that pretty fly boy who's kind of the stereotype. Mm. He's gonna blow up in the next five years. I can't wait for my guy. I've been on that train since 2016, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad I kept my. Get- I've watched like some bad rom coms with Gwen Powell in them with Zoe Deutsch. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is why I kept my stock because he's he's gonna, he's gonna he's gonna cash it someday, and I'm gonna look good. I was like, get this guy Nightwing, get this guy Green Lantern or something. Like, like someone snatching him up before he goes, he goes like nuclear, and he's doing it. Would you say that there's oil under the Glen Powell Hills, and you're the only person who knows how to get to it? Oh, dude, I am Daniel Plainview with, with like young actors sometimes. <laughs> like, like my Logan Lerman stock hasn't hit quite yet, but I still have it. <laughs> Still holding on to it. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, he's in, he's in the new bullet train, so like that's something. My Blake, my Blake Jenner stock has really hit a low mm. as of late. It's been tough, mm. but but a lot might be time guys, to sell. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but when I saw everybody wants them, I was like Zoe Deutsch, Glenn Powell, those two cats got some talent, mm. and um, they do. and it's nice to see him go from like you know trader number one of the Dark Knight to to what he is today in, in Hidden Figures, mm. and he's in a new movie with um. Jonathan Major's coming out soon, and uh, oh wow, Glenn Powell's in the Jurassic Park TV show too. Wow. Uh, anyways, really off topic here, but I think Glenn Powell, this is his like coming out party. This is his rookie season where it's just like, whoa, look out. 
Yeah, next year he's gonna have like 38 home runs, 110 RBIs, bat 324. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One Soto year. All right. By May 2018, the cast was rounded out and the film went into pre-production. <clears throat> the main cast of this movie, as far as like the Naval Flyers, went through a Navy-approved three-month training course before even stepping foot into any aircraft. I don't know if you watch any of the behind-the-scenes footage. I was watching some stuff on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of goes back to what we we're talking about with Teller. I think he likes the challenge. I think he likes the the difficulty of roles like this. You know, in Whiplash, I think he really learned how to play part, parts of the drums, stuff like that. Um, I think this was another thing for him to kind of throw himself into the fire. But, dude, there is no way <laughs> that I would do <laughs> half of the stuff that they are doing. There's footage of them getting dunked underwater for, like, suspended periods of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen they that. They're the trapped in. Yeah. Yeah, there's no way you can get out. Like, it's just absolutely absurd. So I do commend any movie where somebody goes not through just a physical transformation, but goes through something, like, mental like that that really requires you to dig deep. Um, and I think it shows on screen because if they hadn't done something like this, I don't know if all the performances would have been believable. Um, I really like Jay Lewis who played Lawrence in Insecure. It's a great show. I'm not sure if he didn't go through a three month naval training program. I'm buying him as a, you know. Yeah, like he, like I think there's a lot of this movie we'll get to it, but just like the attention to detail and the aspiration to make people buy into this world is very very palpable and it really serves the movie's credit and like <laughs> we talk about like wow this guy got shredded to play uh squirrel man you know like but but the the work that these guys will do to just like to not just like get like buff but to actually get in a plane <laughs> and yeah. learn how to fly is crazy yeah i agree i thought that was absolutely nutty so now we're gonna hop into some of the filming stuff i read an interview with kaczynski that said during a press junket, uh, they spent 15 months working alongside the Navy just to figure out how to capture the Jets realistically. Um, I, I'm not sure percentage-wise, but I'm a lot of this movie was done in camera and as practical effects. Um, so they really wanted to make sure that they were capturing these Jets in a realistic manner. And not um, just like that, but like how to properly shoot them. Like what's the best way this can look? You know, it's not just like (laughs) they were talking about the light, um, the speed of these jets is just ridiculous. So how are you going to capture something moving so fast? Um, The angles as far as, you know, matching eye lines and stuff like that. They would scout out stuff and think things down on the ground for about an hour. And then they would go and fly for an hour. Kaczynski didn't have any way of talking with the actors (laughs) or the flight commander, whoever was flying the plane. Right. So it was literally kind of trial and error. So they could go up for an hour and the footage, could be shit, right because oh i didn't turn on the camera the actors physically yeah. had to turn on the camera <laughs> so or like, i forgot really, what scene we're filming or like yeah right. something like that yeah and and you know movies are already hard enough to make but when you kind of take that element out of it it makes it even you know more difficult which is yeah. makes this movie very unique i'm not sure if there's another movie that's done something like that um the lenses were a big deal too as far as like what lenses wouldn't flare up and had the best color temperature inside the cockpit of the planes when they were moving, you know, they might be in a covered area and then they come out of that covered area and there's a bunch of light, okay? Well, now that shot's ruined. So there was a lot of stuff to work on as far as the technical aspects, where to mount the cameras on the interior and the exterior of the jet. They put two on the outside, two on the inside. Just absolutely crazy um, how much time they spent, 15 months in total before anybody even shot a frame of this movie. Fun fact, the producers of Top Gun paid $11,000 
$11,374 per flight hour during production. Uh, there's 800 hours of footage captured on this movie, exceeding the combined footage shot of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You do the math on that. I mean, not all 800 hours probably required, right? <laughs> yeah. But 11374 $11, dollars per flight hour. Um, yeah. You think that's the I'll most be- anyone ever tried, like, spent to like just get a part of a? I don't even know what I'm trying to say here, but like, right. That is astronomical to be like. All right, well, we got one hour to like get yeah. our shots. Like, so think about that. You have what, like, six planes? I want to say throughout this movie, you got Maverick, Rooster. Hangman. Well, it depends. There's there's more than that during the training sequence. Right, too. right, right. So like yeah. to then have that <laughs> and like to pay that much, like it is it is nuts. And then like, think about a film set day. Uh, uh, days on a film set are about sixteen hours long. It's not a normal eight hour day. So just right. do quickly off the top of your head, you know, eight hours of flight. You're already probably well over or close to a hundred thousand dollars. So. This is why we're in a gas crisis because Top Gun. All right. That's, that's what I'm going <laughs> They wasted it all. Top Gun's the reason for inflation. Yeah. I, <laughs> I didn't want to say though, like this is again, the Tom Cruise effect. Other studios, if they had a lesser actor in this role or in this movie, would just be like, can you not just like, can we not just design a cockpit and put a green screen behind you and just like do it that way right. it on a rig? But, but they would absolutely. I mean, we see that with the first Top Gun too. Where they mm-hmm. do a lot of that, but this movie he's like, no, we're paying eleven thousand dollars. I bet you Tom Cruise is like, he's, he's going to slip some people some money to make sure it can happen. Like, mm-hmm. he is no, so no invested doubt. in this movie in this craft. And again, I, I hate to like overstate it, but like, this is why this movie works. Yep, I agree. Uh, we're going to go into some box office. We'll hit this briefly, just because I think these numbers are bananas. Top Gun, as of now, has grossed one point two billion dollars. Uh, I'm sure it's going to go well over 1.3 before it goes on to streaming or whatever. This is the biggest financial success of Tom Cruise's career comes at the age of 58 or 59, I believe, which is also crazy Uh, is the highest grossing movie of the year. And the second billion dollar movie of the pandemic era, the other one being Spider-Man no way home. Yeah. Well, you're in the, you're in the minority on that take, but we're not going to get into that. We're not going into it. We're not. <laughs> You're not inviting You're the not. Marvel fanboys after me. No, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Probably for the best. Yeah. Fun fact: uh, 49 movies have crossed the billion dollar threshold. Top Gun Maverick is currently at spot 18. Pretty wild. Um, that's kind of all I have for box office and, and pre-production and post stuff. I just, just rolling. I, I, I kind of wanted to talk about that stuff just because I think it is an important process of this movie, as much as the experience of watching it is, the experience and the work that went into making it. Um, for this movie especially, I felt needed to be talked about at least. I wanted to ask, like, since I went like a, oh boy, like a weekday um, on Tuesday, I went there Monday. Um, what was it like for you when you saw it? Cause you thought, saw it th- like closer to the actual release. Um, I saw it on a Thursday morning and there was probably like five people in the theater and they were all over the age of 60. So <laughs> it was a pretty tame experience. I, I which, th- that's for me, that is the optimal viewing experience. Oh, if I could watch every movie with old people, I would. It's the best. Yeah. They, they're so polite. They don't mm-hmm. say anything. They're just like, mm, yeah. No phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why really, you got to go to Alamo Draft House, man. That place is where it's at. They, they're not they, laughing they, a lot because they don't know how to laugh anymore because they've seen so many people they love die. Like, this is why yeah. old people are the best. <laughs> or they're just really confused and don't know what's going on anymore. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I thought Goose died. Why is he back? <laughs> it's like, no, no, Grandpa, it's his son. It's his son. Please. Moving on here. Um, 
I wanted to ask you a, a, just a couple, you know, touchstones. We talk about these things in our personal life, but hitting them here on the podcast, I think will be nice just so we can kind of talk about the industry and what our standards of a good Hollywood movie are and just, I don't know, get to know us a little bit better as far as our mainstream tastes. Yeah, get so, up in our grill. Know, get up, get up all my, this road dog's business. Well, you were gonna say something else. <laughs> no, you're the fire hydrant fans. That's what. Yeah. That's what I would refer to this as. Give me that dog greeting. Oh. Uh, this movie, oh. in my opinion, is a legacy sequel fan service done well. Uh, what does this movie do so well that other films with similar aspirations miss? I think we've talked about this a little bit, but you know, just kind of touch back on it. Um, you know, you look at movies like I said, Jurassic World Dominion, bringing back characters like Laura Dern and. Um, Alan Grant and thank and you, Golden or not Golden. and Jeff Goldblum, and <laughs> really nothing about that movie works. As I, I said earlier, um, that movie feels to me like a cash grab, and completely misses the mark. It's boring. It doesn't do any of the things that made the original good, mm-hmm. um, and like we were talking about earlier, it feels like a majority of the movie was shot on a green screen. Um, I don't know if there is this standard set that like you said, well, can't we just put you in the cockpit and put a green screen behind you and then yeah. we'll just build, build the other jets on a computer. It just seems like there is this laziness that has kind of permeated over the industry these past couple of years, whether you look at the projects that Netflix has turned out or some of those movies that we were just talking about. What does this movie like capture? Like, is it just literally the blood, sweat and tears of like people who want to make a great project? Um, no. And are passionate <laughs> yes. about it, but like, yeah, I, I just don't, I don't know. Go ahead. I'm kind of rambling. I think what we see now is you need emotional heart because I think we've been so mired in the franchise and the box office and studios really pursuing these things that we've lost track of like what makes a good movie. Mm-hmm. And it's not just like, well, the actual sequel says that's pretty crazy. Iron Man punched that guy in the face, you know, like it's not just that. There has to be more behind the punch. There has to be more behind why they're doing these things. And like like movies in the movies that you're probably telling, if you're looking for like a, a billion dollars, they're pretty goofy. You know, mm-hmm. like like Batman's a guy in a bat suit. Right. You know, like like Tom Cruise is a six year old man still flying planes. He's goofy. You know, mm-hmm. Spider Man's a, a guy who could stick to walls for no reason. It it's stupid. But mm-hmm. but studios I think they I think they acknowledge that, but they don't go into the heart of like Okay, we stupid, but how can we explain that in an emotional way that justifies why these movies need to exist? What are we trying to say? Mm. And, and this is something that I got into a conversation with about my friend about the Gray Man. Is he was like, "Oh God, <laughs> I will, I'll be quick about this because that movie's awful." Yeah, well, the movie is great. Yeah, <laughs> but he was like, "It's fine. Like, it's a it's a good movie. Like, it's it's okay." And I was like, "It's not because like." You don't know anything about your characters, so there's 45 minutes left. It's a two-hour movie, you know, $200 million spent, and it looks fake, and it's so fast-paced, and it's so moving so quickly. You don't have any time to breathe and understand why the characters are doing what they're doing. We're yeah, told that why. Scene, yeah, that action scene in the, like... The city square. Where, yeah, it is just disorientating. It, yes. Like, it doesn't work in any way, shape, or form. I don't know where I'm at. I don't know where we're going, like, as far as shot to shot. Um, yeah, it's just... It just it, and we're told why. We're told like, oh, Ryan Gosling, he's friends with the daughter or the the niece of Billy Bob Thornton. It's like, like okay, <laughs> like, yeah. like, but why is he doing this? Why is he going so hard? And we're just sh- we're being shown, not told, or being told, not shown in movies as of late. And I mm. think that's why that makes movies like The Batman and movies like Top Gun 
which are going to show you the classic ideas of like, we're not going to come out and say what the problem is or why this character is doing this, but we're going to show you and you can figure it out on your own. Yeah. And the movie's not just about a punch or a CGI fight at the end. It's a movie about a character's struggle and strength and trials and the, the arc that it goes through. You know, like, I think we're going to talk about the Batman maybe a fair bit on this show because I think there's a lot of similarities here, both in terms of what they've done for the box office. But that movie's about Bruce Wayne figuring out who he is. Is the pain of his parents enough to fuel him? And if it's not, you know, who can he be to try and save the city? And what is going to save him ultimately? And I think you can say the same thing where this movie is about grief. It's about aging. It's about getting older. It's about being a man out of time to some extent. And, and those themes and this tapestry that they're weaving is far more relatable to, I think, audiences than anything that Marvel's tried in yeah. the last five years, I would say. Yeah, I also think there is a lot of hand-holding going on recently. Yes. There's a lot of being told exactly what you need to know and what is important information. I think that there is a lack of confidence in the audience to be mature, to be grown up, to be able to handle concepts like that. Um, and I'm hoping that changes with some of the movies that we were just talking about. But yeah, I totally agree that it's um, there's really no emotional core in a lot of those stories to keep you invested. So I think that's what makes a lot of them fall flat on their faces, especially when it's a, something so unrealistic and like uh, not of this world. It, you do need something to keep you tethered to keep that story, mm-hmm. you know, emotionally engaging. Um, but I will say this: most years, a, a quarter of the big blockbuster blockbuster projects hit the target this year we got the batman which you won't hear a bad word about on this podcast spider-man no way home i know that you're not a huge fan of that movie but it was successful and the The second half is far better but anyways the northman i know didn't make a ton of money but that was a pretty big move by universal to give an auteur that budget to make a epic medieval war pick everything everywhere all at once absolutely came out of nowhere and, and is you know the top earner for a24 of all time so we say this, but I do have a little glint of hope that this movie really might change that formula because the, the industry does have to adapt, right? We can't just continue to rely, rely on these superhero stories and everything is IP and franchise related and there's going to be a tie-in with a toy and you're going to get your own Halloween costume. <laughs> like We do have to adapt and grow out of that at some point. It can't just stay stagnant like that, you know? Or, or we wouldn't have gotten those superhero movies in the first place. And I think it's worth mentioning that even though Thor, the new Thor, has made a lot of money, audiences are not loving it. You know, no, I, I heard that too. I think a lot of audiences are getting kind of tired of Marvel in, in a lot of ways because they're realizing, like, okay, what made those first movies so successful was I care about Tony Stark. You know, <laughs> that first movie is very much about learning not to be selfish and being selfless and putting, you know, other people that you don't even know looking after their safety instead of looking after your own wealth. Mm-hmm. And Captain America is very much about a, a boy becoming a man. You know, kind of all these movies are in the original days of Marvel are very deeper than what they just seem to be. Right. And we care about these characters because they try to make you care mm-hmm. because they had to, because they didn't have a formula to fall back on. But now that they do, I don't know if it's, if it's Feige. I don't know if it's like, we got to put out so much content. We just fall back to the well. I don't know what it is, but they don't make you fall in love with characters in the way they did earlier because they're not taking the time to make you because they have to get to the fight sequence. They need to hit the things that like, like in Barry where like, you got to hit the taste algorithms, you know, the flavor buds of the audience, you know, and they're more focused about that in trying to secure that money than they are trying to secure the, the repeat viewings because people love these movies. 
Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a strange time too. And um, I am a huge supporter of going to the movies and, and experiencing something on the biggest screen possible, but none of those movies make me want to go to the movies. Right. Like I can't remember. I think the last Marvel movie I saw in the theaters was with you, which was guardians of the galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and so, that's one of the better movies. Cause again, it, it is trying to say something about right. not just the human condition, but people in general. It's yeah, trying to show from you, loss, trauma. Yeah. Yes, and, and found families, and even Elvis, as bad of a movie as I think that is, is twelfth in the in the worldwide box office this year, and it's not trying to. It, it's not a movie like that. Like it's not a regular movie that you're going to go see. It is such a different beast to bad yeah. Yes, and, and it is trying to say something about people and fame, and and the tragic story that is Elvis Presley, and people responded. So yeah. I, I do think there are glimmers of hope kind of starting to peter out. And as much as the new like HBO Max stuff is really goofy and odd, where they're like, bad girl, <laughs> we didn't make that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is this idea of like, okay, HBO Max is getting away from the streaming type of platform because the executives want to pivot to theater goers. They mm-hmm. want to get the money through the box office instead of just like at your home. And I do think it wouldn't shock you within – you know, five to 10 years that we get back to what movies and kind of what that experience should be. And I think Top Gun Maverick is a really big part of maybe why. Yeah. I hope this is a movie that kind of kicks that door down. Um, and I also would like to shout out, Nope, another movie that we're yes. both pretty big on that shows you that you can make a blockbuster that makes you think and has ideas and themes. And is trying to say something about race and loss and trauma and capture in our, you know, in, in rapturement with, with spectacle and like, uh, thinking that we deserve to see something and can control it. Um, so there are movies out there that are trying to do it. I just hope that we keep getting more of them. Yeah. Um, but kind of moving on, we we're talking about streaming movies and stuff like that. I think this is a good time to hit this point of the conversations here. Uh, Tenet began production in May, 2019. <laughs> the world shut down in March. Warner Bros. Warner Brothers. I cannot speak today. I can't say until 2 a.m. again and do a podcast. <laughs> You knew we were doing it today. No, uh, I got I got caught up in the power broker, man. <laughs> I knew to know why this guy is so bad. Instead of like, I, I need to give the audience something to enjoy. They're enjoying it. They're just going to be like so much ADR though. That's where you're like, Warner Brothers. <laughs> All edited. My voice is like a robot. The world shut down in March. Uh, Warner Brothers got Tenet rushed through post-production and out by August and what movie theaters were still open. It made $58 million domestically during its theatrical run. Uh, not good. No. Top Gun began production in May 2018, opened on Memorial Day 2022, and made a cool $160 million on its opening weekend. 50% more than expectations. Um, going to the movie theaters is back. I think we've kind of hit this about people getting the same joy from spectacle and exhibition, but I think this is more about release strategy. Um, experiencing something with an audience as opposed to home at your TV screen. TV screen. It's not fair to totally paint Tenet as a flop. It was bold, kind of reckless to do what it did in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, it had a successful streaming life, much to the displeasure of Christopher Nolan on HBO Max. But I think this release. I can't released... believe this movie. <laughs> so the people watching this movie at home is crazy. It sounds more like Christopher Nolan's grandmother, but. <laughs> I just think this release shows that timing is everything. And there was, you know, this movie was in the can for what, three years before it released? Glenn Powell probably wanted this movie out more than anybody. Yeah, he was you know like, someone, please. <laughs> please put this out so my career can like take off. 
but it was such a smart strategy to be like, nope, we're going to wait till things are at least manageable, that it is safe for everybody to go back, or not fully safe, but safe as we can make it for people to go back to the movie theaters. This is a movie that is not going to play on your TV screen. This is a movie that you're going to go pay to get a ticket for. You're going to go to the concession stands and get a big popcorn and a thing of um, soda, and you're going to sit down and watch this movie in a, on a hot summer day. And yeah, I think that that was really smart of them to push back against the trend that would have been really easy to go with. And this movie probably still would have made a bunch of money, but it probably wouldn't have made as much money as it did now if they had put it on Paramount Plus or sold it to Netflix or whatever. And by um, the way, this is again, Tom Cruise. In, exactly. in other studios, they can push him around, you know, like all, all due respect to John David Washington, but he doesn't have the cachet quite yet to be like, no, I want this movie to open in theaters. Cruise can. I thought it was crazy. I thought it was crazy that Christopher Nolan didn't have the sway to like, or like, you know what I mean? Uh, he uh, he did cut off ties with Warner Bros. after because isn't Oppenheimer being funded by Universal? Oh yeah, that actually you're right. Yeah, it is. So no, so there have been consequences. Right. Yeah yeah, you're you're actually you're actually right on on that. I forgot. So you know we are seeing consequences for that action, but uh, I mean, who produced this technically? Was it um, was this Universal as well? Uh, this, uh yeah, Paramount. 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 Kudos to Paramount for like listening to the guy who knows best and, and just mm-hmm. like giving this movie the, the release it deserves. Well, I think this is a prime example too, is like, look, studio executives don't always know everything. Sometimes you just really <laughs> need to listen to the audience. Yes. You know what I mean? Like listen to Tom, listen to King Cruz, listen to the audience and we'll go from there. I mean, it's still in theaters too. Like that's the craziest part is you can go to your local IMAX today and go see a movie that came out in May. <laughs> that is that yeah. is nuts and I, I give them a lot a lot of credit i can't remember the last time there was a movie that did that it's been a while uh, uh-huh. it might be like the pirates of the caribbean movies like we we're talking about uh-huh. i mean there might have been something before <laughs> probably the avengers one of the avenger movies i'm sure was yeah, out for a long probably. time but yeah i get exactly what you're saying it's very rare that that happens um i think we've, we've kind of hit this topic a little bit here so we'll move on to the next one um this one's just kind of fun there is a fan theory out there that after the Dark Star crash, Maverick has died and the rest of the film is an afterlife dream sequence. People point to the lack of technology, which I don't fully understand because they're flying F-18s and texting each other. Um, yeah. the, dream, <laughs> the dreamlike sequences throughout the film, it kind of ha- it, the whole film has a very um, like kind of lucid feel to it, like a dreamy kind of... Well, he gets everything right, basically. Right. Like, he does yeah. something wrong, but ultimately everything works out for good old Maverick, and, and he's happy, and he gets Jennifer Connelly and, and Brewster and exactly. his buddies, you know, like... You think this holds any water? They also point to the fact that everybody in the diner when he crashes is kind of dressed out of the times, and it looks like he's um, like gone back in time almost. No, I, I think this is really silly. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I do too. <laughs> like, if you want to view the movie like this, that's cool, I guess. But like, kind of takes away from like Tom Cruise like getting something right before he goes to heaven, and instead of just like right, the man wanted to make amends for the sins he's caused in his past. Yeah, like, like I think if you <laughs> it undercuts it undercuts all the emotional like. Yeah, of the movie yeah, because these people aren't real anymore they're just figments of tom cruise's imagination <laughs> yeah i think um, this movie tom cruise is a guy who in the movies always gets it right i don't think he would have made this movie if he didn't get to yeah. make it right you know? and i i understand where they're coming from if the dark star crash did actually happen he's so dead yeah like, like <laughs> yeah he's in pieces but i think it's worth mentioning that like when he lands in that small town it is a small town. Like in some areas of, of the United States, 
they are just that rural. You know, mm-hmm. like like kids still wear their blue jeans. They don't have like their Hulk thing. And like, right. if you wanted to suspend the disbelief that like they're gonna launch this like thing and destroy this nuclear part, you should might as well just believe that like Tom Cruise didn't die. Like, if we're gonna make yeah. <laughs> like if we're gonna make these leaps, maybe we'll just accept that Tom Cruise doesn't have all gray hair and he's actually dying at this entire time. Yeah, yeah. Um, how many Oscar noms do you think this thing gets? I have I have talked about this. And I have at least a couple categories, I think, that are not necessarily a lock, but there better be a damn nomination. Hit me. Cinematography, sound, editing, directing, best picture. I think Cruz gets a best actor nom. That's a lot. <laughs> I think, I think, I'm, but I'm not saying it's going to sweep and win all six. Right, of them. right. I'm that's just, just a lot of noms because there's only, what, five in each of them, but top or best picture? Didn't they expand it? No, Best Picture's got ten nominations, but everything else has five. I want to say, right? Yeah. So, like that, for them to dominate and get that many in those categories, I feel like that's kind of a lot to ask. But I don't think that's that crazy. I mean, look at like Lord of the Rings. Look okay, at, so so stuff like that. Batman's yeah. definitely getting a cinematography. I feel very confident saying that. You think it'll win cinematography? No, but I know it's at least one of the five going to be in there, maybe with Top Gun. So if we're I saying, I don't think it'll get nominated. Road I dog. wanted to. Road dog, we might have to have a bet here. Road dog hot takes. <laughs> um, but like, I I don't know. This is hard because I don't know. Like, I, there's so many pictures coming down the line that like it, it has to be it, it, as an industry. Like, the Academy votes on like people sometimes who push the industry to like new standards and stuff like that. Purely on like a, a standpoint of what it did for movies. I in the lobbying crews will probably do this movie is going to get nominated for the technical categories. It, it, it can't not get nominated for them. And it probably it will. will win a lot of them, in my opinion. I don't know if Cruz will win Best Actor. There's a lot of other performances still to come out this year. But I think that he's going to get a nom, um, especially not only for his performance in the movie, but what he did for movies in general. I think they're going to give him a little little, little charity nom. But I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's also well-deserved. I think his performance is great in the movie. Um, but yeah, I think this movie is a lock for at least five to six categories. I think it's getting best picture and I feel pretty safe about that because there's 10. And if we're going to resume that doom or doom, doom, uh, doom gets the best picture. Now, which it did last year. I feel like this is very much in the same vein of, you know, either it or the Batman. I think the Batman probably less because it's less of a like celebration of film the way Top Gun is. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say best picture is safe. I'm going to say no on best actor because there are so many coming down the pipe that we just don't know right. about. You know, like once we get into September, October, November, that's where like the cinemas are just like flopping their big film reel down on the table. Like, hey, yep. here it comes. <laughs> you know? yep. like, here comes the Oscar bait. Let's yeah. reel you in. Like all your little your fans of like, oh, boy, I hope Tom Cruise is like, nah, Brandon Gleason and the, the, the Irishman or whatever the movie's called that he's making with yeah. uh, Colin Farrell, you know, like. Mm-hmm. No, I get it's what a saying. good question. Yeah, that, that's just kind of where I stand on it. I think it's going to get a lot of noms. Um, I also think that given the way things kind of went down at the last Oscars, this would be a great year for them to also lean into listening to the audience, lean into listening to the people who support us and make us who we are and like make this show. Um, so yeah, I think it would be a smart move for them to kind of double down on this movie as a whole. It's going to be mentioned at the Oscars, if nothing else, like they're going to have a little bit of whoever's hosting it be like, Oh, I'm, I'm bad. Like Tom Cruise is going to be yeah. on stage for something. He's presenting an award. I would hazard to guess if yeah, he's not like definitely. in a broken cast, as he like fractures ankle, like, 
doing like a 360 spiral for Mission Impossible 8. Yeah, yeah. Uh, supposedly, Miles Teller has been pitching a sequel focusing on Rooster's character. Uh, thoughts on this? No. No. This yeah, really I think stupid. this is the perfect bow. Yeah. <laughs> like, Anything else, I think, just runs the risk of redundancy, um, but the well, box office would suggest otherwise. Well, they got lucky the first time. Like on the sequel, like let's not let's not tempt fate here and dilute like like you were saying, like you know, we, we talk about Rocky here and here here and there today, but like the reason why the Rockies four and five and three are bad is because there's nothing left to challenge Rocky in the same emotionally or mentally way that the first did. Or the second in, in that matter, which isn't in and of itself isn't beloved as much as I think it maybe should. But like not that people don't have more to change outside of like what Rooster's gone through. But what more can you do that is thematically in line and emotionally as challenging for not just Teller to perform, but for, you know, story to fit? Mm-hmm. Like, ultimately, we know this movie's probably going to boil down to the same general idea of, like, there's another rogue state. Rooster, right. Rooster's now the top gun cadet, you know, he's got to, you know, post One thing real quick. I don't think we touched on the military ambiguity in this movie either yet. Oh, but... we'll get to it. We'll get, okay. I, we okay. haven't really talked about the movie itself. We've talked a lot about we like, the surrounding stuff, but we'll get to right. it. Right. Okay, cool. Maybe, maybe okay. Kip's Corner, but, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, like, I, I just think it's kind of a silly idea, and I get why Miles Teller could, because, like, this movie's been great for his career and it's kind of been a reinvention after he had some like sketchy, I think accusations, you know, earlier to start the last couple of years. But I just think you're running the risk of like too much of a good thing that it becomes a bad thing. Has that stuff just been wiped from the internet? Because I've been hearing that and I just don't know anything about it. I mean, <laughs> let's, let's not bring it up on the podcast. No, no, no. But, but there are several actors as of late where it's either they get sunk or they just like swim through. Right. I don't know, but yeah. Uh, I'll have to do my own independent research, but yeah, I, I have no desire for a sequel. I think that this was the perfect bow on these movies. I don't think. And then, are you going to make a Top Gun movie without Tom Cruise? Yeah, like, see, it's the same thing of like Creed Three. Know. It's like we're going to not have you know Stallone involved. Like that seems a little right. silly considering he's kind of the backbone of this. But yeah, I agree. So I think I'm out on the Miles Teller sequel. Um, what's our call signs? Uh when I was when I used to, I when I used to I did it once. I, I played laser tag once and I insisted that everyone call me Red Hawk. because uh, okay. of the hair. <laughs> yeah, I, I could have guessed that. Yeah, you know, I have red hair, so people don't know that because this is just an mm-hmm. audio format, but like that was my idea and like I was like, We're not calling you that. Like we're just playing laser tag. <laughs> I was like, No, red I'm Hawk. Red Hawk. You call me Red Hawk. Uh, but no one really stuck to it, and no one's called me it since. So I think I have to like relent on that. But I have like no other good ones. That's always a good like indicator where you are with your mental health. Is like if you give yourself a nickname, it's yeah. like nah, like I'm Red Hawk. <laughs> it's like nobody nobody calls you that, man. Nobody it's calls too cinematic too. Like yeah, like you know, like I'll get like uh, the King of Pops because I have like loud farts sometimes. You know, like mm-hmm. that's pretty good. But like, have we just gone away from nicknames as a culture? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if we've gotten away from nicknames as a culture. I how do I want to say this? My boss and I give people nicknames, but I'm not sure if they're aware of what the nickname <laughs> but it's, is. It's derogatory, yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't think they've gone away, but maybe they've changed, just like movies. But who knows? Uh, my call sign would be Cornrow. Oh, okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, I think yeah, Road Dog would be a great like call sign. That would like, be a good one too. Like Road Dog, you got some on your right, you know, like. 
Like it works pretty well. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones like, mm. like Rocky. I think I, I don't know. Like I'm just well, like you can't do that. Come <laughs> on, you just literally. Yeah, come on. Oh, the Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my call sign is uh, going to be Captain America. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I feel like sports names you can get maybe like Staubach, like that could be kind of a cool one. Uh, can I tell you what my other one would be for going sports? Please, Broncos country. <laughs> I got mine now, Mister Mister Unlimited. That'd be mine. <laughs> Every morning on the radio, I listen to one hundred four point three The Fan while I drive into work. <laughs> And every single time, like they cut to commercial, that is how like the ad ends. Is Russell Wilson going Broncos country? Let's ride. He's such an awful like cringe man. Like, but he's he's spectacular. Him and t- him and Tom Cruise are very similar. In that oh way. yeah, like, they, they are. are just complete cheese. <laughs> they double down on it and mean every single word of it, and you're there for it. Like, yeah, this guy's gonna throw 38 touchdowns this year. Let's go, Broncos country. Let's ride. I think I might just go with Mister Unlimited as my call sign because like. Like imagine your dog like Mr. Limited to your right. Like like it's nice and quick, it's effective, it's like kinda cool sounding, but also stupid enough that like Rooster <laughs> like Rooster's not the best call sign. Let's be let's be real here. It's you're you're calling yourself a, a chicken. Well it fits like, with goose. Yeah, of course. But I just mean like for being like Rooster, like it's not the most manly right. sounding thing. Like Rooster's <laughs> kinda stupid too. Whereas like the same thing could be said about Mr. Unlimited. It's like you're stupid. Mr. Unlimited, that's my favorite one of the bunch. <laughs> Mr. Unlimited. When somebody asks you what you are, you say, I'm unlimited. Uh, I, think, I, could, I, think... I, I could recite that whole thing maybe because like there's a moment in that video where Ciara is like, Russell, Russell, who, who's your favorite mentor? It's like, sorry, Pete, blah, 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 but it's Mr. Unlimited. It's like you're saying you're your own mentor. Like, what are you talking about? You crazy buffoon. Yeah, I uh, I don't know what water Russell Wilson's drinking out here, but I want some of it. That's what I know. He's crazy. I love it, though. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to quotes. Um, go ahead. What's yours? First fast uh, quotes. I guess it's, it's not t- the plane. It's the pilot. It's probably the best one. Um, yeah. It could be better. And there's not a lot of like great quotes. There's a lot of great moments, but not a lot of like mm. lines. You're like, oh wow. Yeah, it's you a pretty know? short list we got here. Um, love me some Ed Harris. You've got some balls, stick jockey. <laughs> friend of the show. Ed Harris. Ed Harris, longtime <laughs> listener, friend of the show. <laughs> The best part is you say that and we haven't released a single episode yet, which means that <laughs> like Ed, Ed Harris is like cracking into your laptop and like individually down to the MP4s and listen to them as they're pre-edited. Like, oh no, Ed Harris is editing the show. Oh, oh, he's our editor. He's our producer. Yeah. Editor-in-chief Ed Harris. <laughs> we might have to like just now clip Ed Harris lines to like run the mystery. He's like our producer talking to us, be like – yeah, I'm gonna have to cut that part out. Like one of my favorite sequences uh, with Ed Harris is when he tells Tom Cruise that he's going to be extinct, mm. and Tom Cruise says, "Maybe one day, but not today, sir." <laughs> that line right there, and like the way they cut it too, is so cheesy. And they and like they did it like an '80s one, right? Yeah. Because it cuts to the mid of Tom Cruise and he doesn't say anything. And then it cuts to the close up of him saying that line. I'm like, yes, that is so. And he cocks his yes, head a little yes. bit too of like, yeah. not today, sir. Like he has that, that like kind sense. of smarmy little smile at the end of like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm Tom Cruise. It's so great. So I had that whole sequence in there. I didn't write it in here, but I had it in my head. Um, I don't like that look, Maverick Hondo. It's the only one I've got before he takes off on the last mission. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a poignant part right there you had it says to... that to uh i think he says that to uh jennifer Connolly as well when she's like don't give me that look he's like that's the only one i got 
he, he also says it in the beginning to Hondo as well before he takes off in the uh, Dark Star as well. So it's called back a couple times. Um, you put it's time to let go in here. I think that was one of the best scenes in the movie too, and just the way Kilmer looks down at the screen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and and his whole his whole situation too as as a performer too is really really tough to watch at times. But I really thought it was a tasteful and respectful way that they wove it into the the story. Absolutely. Um... Uh, Naval Aider is not what I am; it's who I am. It's pretty good, mm-hmm. you know. I feel the same way about uh, podcasting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> being a podcaster is not what I am, Mom. It's who I am. Um, Josh, are you going to come down for dinner? <laughs> the the chicken's getting a little cold here, bud. God damn it, Mom! Ah, <laughs> oh, come on! Can I be on the podcast again? It's like, no, Dad. You just wait. You haven't seen Talking Maverick. <laughs> Uh, talk to me, Dad, with Rooster. That one talk made me, me tear up. A little, yeah. yeah, that one made me tear up a little bit in the movie theater. Not gonna lie, this movie, like this movie, doubles like, again, like doubles down on the cheese, and I'm totally, totally in on it. Like I'm there for it. I, I did tear up when he was like, "Talk to me, Dad." I was like, "He's saying that because Dad died." Oh <laughs> uh, no! <laughs> <laughs> and then you got "It's Not the Plane, It's the Pilot" by Maverick, right? Yeah, I think that's probably my favorite for now. Hmm. All right. Well, I think that we should probably – do you want to do Kim's Corner or do we want to actually talk about this movie? Uh, let's talk about the movie then do Kim's Corner. Okay. Start us off, babe. I guess it's tough. I was telling you this already, but like when a movie first comes out and you're in the theaters and like you don't have the time to like stop and appreciate the little things and just be like, I want to watch this one scene more. Think about how that relates to the bigger picture because you're just in a th- – <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like there's no way to stop like – now that the Batman's been out, I can watch that movie for like two minutes and like pick up a new thing. But with right. this movie, we're not quite there yet uh, because it's not a VOD. But like, I guess the first thought I had after this movie was like, what an accomplishment in every sense of the word. Like, we've talked a lot about why that is, but just like, it is such a theater going experience that you're like, Gosh darn. Like I am gonna be like Philip Rivers on this podcast, by the way. I'm not gonna swear, so I'm just gonna say like really silly. You going full Phil Rivers? Yeah, I'm gonna go full Phil Rivers. Let's Are we it. talking forever or just this? Oh episode? no, 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 no. Oh well, yeah, forever on the podcast. Like You're gonna forever on the podcast go big Phil? Yeah, I'll go big Phil. Like I could not I swear. respect that. Let's go. <laughs> no, what the fuck that. that, man? You just you just touched me on the way down. Like I'll go full I love Phil him. Rivers. Uh, hey, thank just... you, Cameron. We'll take those fifteen <laughs> yards. Thank you, Cameron. <laughs> but like you just—it's just such a, like an achievement in, in the filmmaking and the storytelling and, and the scope of it. There are some problems with it, which I want to get into because I don't want to, the audience to think like I think this is a perfect movie because it's definitely not. Um, but this is a sequel done right in a way that I think a lot of franchises have struggled with. You know, I think Star Wars, um, the Marvel stuff that we've already kind of mentioned. Ooh. <laughs> Whoa. They struggled with that. Might be putting it lightly, <laughs> yeah. um, but like the way you introduce and tell a new story within an already established universe that doesn't discredit the first one, but adds onto that legacy while introducing new characters that, if you really, really want to, could spin off into their own thing. Probably shouldn't, um, but no. like it introduces and does things the right way. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I think that there's a world where this movie does all the things wrong that we've talked about previously, right? Where um, there's no emotional attachment. Uh, somebody who isn't Miles Teller plays Rooster and he doesn't have the things that we're talking about. Um, you know, they, they go the green screen route and it looks like, but because you got the cherry pick team by Cruz, 
because you have people who are committed to the experience of going to the movie theaters, you you got fan service done well, legacy sequel done well. I just, that's something I really kind of want to keep repeating. So maybe if somebody who has any power listens to this absolutely Pulitzer Prize winning podcast, they'll maybe, you know, maybe take some of, some of the things I have to say <laughs> into account. I like your idea that we're like, okay with me to Pulitzer. Like, there's like, they're not technically journalists. They don't interview anyone, but boy, they... They really make me laugh. They make me chuckle. <laughs> those, those two goofballs make me chuckle. <laughs> those road dogs really know how to talk about a film, huh? And who can forget Chris Shaw? What a, what a character they have here. Um, <laughs> but I, I think the biggest thing to me was like, this is not an action movie to me. There's definitely action scenes, but it's far more drama, like Kaczynski was saying. And I think ultimately it's a movie about grief and aging and the metatextuality of Tom Cruise's career Mm-hmm. And and just everything that there is about becoming an older person and seeing the people you love around you die, and you're just mm-hmm. left here with a new generation of people that are maybe looking to you for leadership and guidance. And I think it does a tremendous job at that. And it's really just – like I don't know what else – like this is part of the problem is I don't have enough time to think about this movie the way I would, mm-hmm. you know, like Goodfellas. Right. Like, it's yeah, been 30 it's, years and I've hasn't had time to mar- marinate. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, we've definitely talked about a lot of it, but like, right. It is just one of the things where it's so good right now to me because it's so fresh that like it hasn't been spoiled quite yet. And there's like mm-hmm. that newness that it's like boring almost to talk about because it's just like, oh, that was good. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Um, if we're just going to kind of start doing that, I'm, I'm going to hop in and say some things too, just about Please. the parts of the movie I really enjoy. Uh, the hard deck scene is absolutely incredible. The way that scene starts with just him and Penny and we're introduced to the whole entire cast of the movie and like there are stakes in that scene. We're established in the world. We know everybody's motives and like like when Hangman comes in, it does kind of have that one cheesy part about the only man to actively take down of blah, blah, blah <laughs> in 20 years. Kind of like little hack hacky movie line but for the most part that scene feels so organic you feel like these guys are just like getting off of work they're going to have a couple of beers and like shoot some pool and then miles teller's back in town there might be a relationship between him and phoenix it's never told like it's never resolved but it's just it's just let it's just left to hang there and it's so great like i love the way that scene is written i love how tom cruise looks at penny and says are you mad at me and she says pete let's not start this again uh it's just like a great it's just like a great dynamic and the way that um they casted Jennifer Conley and she's not like some sex pot. She's just a mom who mm-hmm. runs a bar. I thought that was a really great choice. Uh, it kind of speaks to what you're talking about, about aging and kind of realizing who you are in the world around you existentially. Mm-hmm. So I really thought that was a, a, a really, really, really marvelous scene in the ending where Pete's outside and he looks inside and he sees Bradley playing on the piano, playing uh, Great Balls of Fire. And then Jennifer Conley sees him react. Just like the dynamic to have that. It's almost like a triangle of emotions, right? Him looking at Bradley and then her looking at him. It's just so well done. I thought that whole scene was shot and just written really, really well. And the way that they maneuver and stage things where that cruise can't be seen by Rooster, but you can feel that that noticement of, of, of Maverick to Rooster and like the way that builds it's just like the small tension of like as an audience we know who these two characters are mm-hmm. and we assume they're not on great terms it's not like hey Rooster you know like they're not right. like walking up and there's that slight tension of like oh are they going to see each other like is there going to be a fight here mm-hmm. um, and it's it's kind of like you were saying where 
the first Top Gun is is very much a goofy movie because it is kind of how you approach your twenties in a lot of ways, where like mm. you do feel invincible, things do feel lighter, the stakes don't feel as high, you know. Like in the end, he's just like, ah, oh, yeah, like me and I did it, you know. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. But with this movie, there's far more tension of like, I'm going getting to the end. This could be my end. I know my own mortality, and it's why mm-hmm. when he before he leaves, he hugs Penny on the beach. It feels more powerful because you know this man has gone through 30 years of losing people he loves, and now he could die, and it's a very real possibility. He doesn't feel that invulnerability that he probably once did as a man, as a youth, and it is really just a testament to how like the one thing he wants now isn't you know, just to fly a plane. It's to be with someone he loves and to be with someone who makes him feel good in a way that's not just like – it's companionship. Like it's not a steamy relationship here. It's not mm-hmm. like Kelly McGillis where it's just like, boy, they're horny. Um, right. This is far more a thing of like companionship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's a great scene too, um, where I guess quasi sex scene. I can never tell with Tom Cruise if he's having a sex scene. He, that, there's like, no way. I don't, they, they, I, none I, of them are good. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, after they hang out uh, and he jumps out of the window and stuff. Yeah. That I loved that line that the daughter says, mm-hmm. just don't break her heart again. Mm-hmm. Because in every single other blockbuster movie and any other movie, we see that like he falls and hits his head and like hurts himself falling out of the tree. And she looks over and that's how she finds out mm-hmm. something stupid and, and just like kind of not needed. But that line has like poignancy. That line has meaning, right? She's seen her mom be hurt by this guy before and doesn't want to see it again. I loved that part. I thought that was such a great choice. Well, more than um, that, I would say it also gives so much more depth to the Connolly character and the way that these films kind of traditionally treat mm-hmm. the woman and the, the love interest where like – in the original Top Gun, Kelly McGillis is about like a flight like instructor. Yeah, something like but that. But there's not much about her other than the fact of like that's her role. Tom Cruise wants to you know be with her. They're, yeah. they're smashing. Yeah, this movie is far more interested in like – Hey, like Penny is not just there to be someone t- for Tom Cruise to chase after. She can really be hurt by him. She has been hurt by him, and there's far more risk, not for just him, but for her as well. You mm-hmm. know, like, like she, <laughs> she's a fantasy in a way because she's like a hot woman who's got a bar and a kid and knows how to sail, and she's perfect. Right. But she also has her vulnerabilities that the movie really does take time to point out. And make sure the audience realizes, like, she's a person. She's not just a, a thing to chase after. Yeah, right. Like, that whole scene after they sleep together, like, she's I'm convinced they just the- watch TikTok. They just watch TikTok. <laughs> she's talking about the trials and tribulations <laughs> of raising a teenager. It's Yes. I don't think you really get a lot of those types of conversations um, in those types of movies either. And I love the part where he then, an hour into the movie, we finally understand the whole thing of why bradley's really mad at him like he talks about it before but then we get the context of why maverick made that decision in the long run yes it was it was to protect him it was it was the dying wish of his mother so he didn't want to lose not he didn't want to be responsible not only for well he feels responsible for the death of you know goose he didn't want to be on the hook for the death of rooster as well if something were to happen to him so i think that was really well done that that scene wasn't just used to show oh these two are these two are going to get back together now (laughs) There was, a, there was a lot done within that scene. That establishes why the way – why everything is the way it is, not just between her, him and Penny, but also between him and Rooster. Mm-hmm. Of, and I think of that line of like, you know, I didn't – he resented me for the death of his father. I didn't want him to resent his mother as well. 
of like, you know, Maverick is a very silly man in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, he's made a lot of mistakes, but he does ultimately have a good heart. And he's willing to be hated so that Rooster can have that love for his mother, you know, respected. So he has something to hold himself onto. And I, I just think this movie does a lot of, of that in a way that action movies don't really try to do anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, what's what's on here as well for scenes that I kind of wanted to talk about? The training oh, sequence. I don't want to cut you off, but I did want no, to go into it on that. God, that's awesome. <laughs> so great. Like that's the goofy thing that this movie can also do. It can do those emotional beats, but it also could fantastically film and edit and stage like the quick cuts between the the flying, the sound of like you're dead and the push-ups is really not just funny, but it's telling you a story of well of like how often and how good Maverick is. It's mm-hmm. not just showing us blowing him up things. It's by showing all these kids doing all these push-ups and Rooster's being so sore, you know he got his ass kicked by Tom Cruise and Ben Maverick because he's the best. Right. Yeah, and there's a really great part. And I also kind of, if you haven't seen this movie by now in the theaters, you're not going to. So I don't really, I also I don't, don't know why you're listening to this. Like we're an hour true. 20 deep, I feel. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Um, but there is something that they do really well. And I don't know if it would have worked if it wasn't this team but the way that they handle rooster and tom cruise in that scene where they're going down and like seeing he says i can go as low as you sir which is saying something or i can't remember the exact dialogue they exchange but like that scene in a lot of those kinds of movies like oh here we go this is the this is the son pushing the dad but it feels so much more like there's there are actual stakes it feels like rooster would drive himself into the ground to prove a point against tom cruise yes at the end of the movie when they're trying to fly out of that valley it does feel like somebody could die tom cruise could die in that movie or rooster could die at that point in the movie and you would totally believe it and it feels like it could happen I just think this movie does su- such a good job of raising the stakes. Even the training sequences have stakes. Um, Coyote passes out and almost dies. Phoenix and Bob have to eject before they crash land. Like the stakes are just so much higher and elevated and feel, you feel the weight of those training sessions. You feel that they are ramping these guys up for a mission that maybe somebody might not come back from. And I do think that's one of the other great parts of this movie is that you know, the the hero in all these movies traditionally like, I'm going to get the job done no matter the cost, you know, like. Right. But Maverick is more concerned of like, well, I think there's one scene in particular where they're talking about like getting the mission done. And he says, yeah, but the ultimate goal is no lives lost. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what matters most to him because he's, he knows the toll of death, not just yeah. in Ice's death, but Goose's death as well. He knows what it is like to tell someone they love their son or father or whatever is just not coming home. And to him, it's not just important that he comes home. It's more important than everyone else does. And yeah. it, it's, it kind of defies that kind of trope of, of action movies in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says to um, Phoenix when she's not really making excuses, but you know, kind yeah. of trying to explain why she did what she did. He says, is there a reason that his family will understand at yeah. his funeral? He, he really is about, you know, he says he's not a teacher, but he's a really good teacher. You know, like throughout the movie, he talks about like not being a teacher. He only lost three months of Top Gun school when he was a teacher. But hmm. man, he does a really great job. Like <laughs> I didn't really fully understand that part because I'm like, well, he's he's actually phenomenal at what he's doing. But well, uh, maybe that's part of that. that and yes and no. <laughs> like, like the whole like define like orders constantly, maybe not great. Well, that's the character. Uh, true, true. I just mean like if we're evaluating him as a teacher. 
Right. So like if yeah. I if I was a teacher, right, and I was like, "Hey, kids, we're we're gonna watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the first one." Don't think, I, just do. <laughs> as I plop in the VHS, <laughs> like I I don't know if that makes me a great teacher because I'm like I'm daring to show these kids some cinema, you know, like. That's fair. But yeah, I think he's right. a great teacher in life lessons, not just as like a, a flight instructor. Right. Right. Um, other scenes. Uh, I, I think we should just have to talk about the third act and like how raucous and great and frenetic and like the the final. Oh, it's so good. Like, last 30 minutes of this movie are the best oh. 30 minutes I've seen in so long. I know you like the Batman more, but how can you watch those last 30 minutes and tell me that that is not the superior film? Um, I just don't think it is. I, I think oh. I, I will this is I, bias. It is, absolutely. But you asked me if I think it's superior or not. And that factors into a bias. Like Fair enough. Um it's so, so good. And and the just like I, I think every character functions really well in that too, where it's not just the feeling of like one guy. You know, mm-hmm. you feel the team effort of like, well, Bob's gonna lock on the missile and then so does a fanboy and you know, mm-hmm. everything else and they gotta push it and go faster. And that culmination of like don't think just do. And it, it yeah, just, Rooster finally, finally hits the speed. Yeah, yeah, he finally yeah. realizes his potential and isn't just thinking. He's he's more focused on like making you know his not making his dad proud, but just being a pilot. Mm-hmm. And and those great touches, it's just like it's wonderful. And we could argue and debate about the like once Tom Cruise takes the missile from the Sam and what happens after. <laughs> but like, yeah. But up yeah. until then, that it is so flawless. It is so fun. You were on the edge of your seat and the sound, oh my God, the sound is so loud that like, it is so immersive of an experience on, on the whole. I love the chaos of that shot too. When they're like finally out of the valley and the missiles are, are coming after them and Tom Cruise lets off the flares and then yes. the other, and then Phoenix goes above and lets off the flares, but there's an overhead shot and you see all these rockets crisscrossing and the planes going across. It's just magnificent. Like it's so great. I mean, like I was like biting. I don't usually get like that at the movie theater, no matter how like great I think the movie is. I'm not usually the guy like chewing my fingernail, tapping my foot, like, dude, you got to get out of there. You got to get out of there. But I was doing that at that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I thought the last 30 minutes were absolutely incredible and my favorite of the movie, but um, Tom Cruise crashes his F-18 in this movie um, and lives again. And proceeds to that man knows how to survive a plane crash. <laughs> um, well, before we get into that part, then Rooster goes back to save him. Spoiler alert: If you haven't seen it at this point, stop listening. Rooster goes back to save him and ignores orders. Also, gets shot down. Miraculously, they find each other when they probably were I don't know uh, 30, 40 miles apart. I do want to say I was really nervous we wouldn't get a Tom Cruise run in this movie because it is so stationary. <laughs> And thank God it came. I wonder if it's in his contract. Like, I need a running scene where he, like, he's running, like, Rooster, what are you doing? Like, how'd you get here? And it's just like, thank God it's here. Not like that Tom Cruise impression (laughs) at all. (laughs) But, yeah, they get shot down. They miraculously meet back up with each other. Then go to um, said airstrip that they absolutely just blew the out of and fly a plane off of that they have about 40 feet. It's not even a runway. It's a taxiway. Um, this is the part for me where, as much as I love this movie, um, the zaniness and like the suspense of disbelief kind of gets shattered. It's just, it's almost too much. But I've been so invested on the ride this far that I'm like, all right, take me home. I'm okay with it. We'll, we'll ride it out. It doesn't work necessarily. 
there's no way they're getting away from three Gen V fighter, Gen five fighters in a like cold war era plane. But um, see, I could buy that almost because Maverick is so good. But what really bothers me about the third act is how many Deus Ex Machina's there are of like, Rooster's going to die. Maverick takes the, takes the shot. Maverick's going to die. Rooster blows up the helicopter. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to die. Hangman shows up the last minute or, or Tom Cruise perfectly hits all the gunshots. Right. And that is kind of a part of the, the dramatic tension and everything like that. But I would just like one movie. They're like, oh, man, the helicopter. Just, oh, it's it just got blown up. <laughs> right. <laughs> like now like it's barreling down my neck. And there's just a lot of those where it's like I see why you're going for it. And I understand the dramatic tension and, and reason behind it. But it does feel kind of cheap how it's always like, oh, no, just kidding. Like there's always like it the last It does feel minute. a little shoehorned in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think though once they're back in the air – um, I think the thing that maybe makes it work is I'm com- I completely forget about what just happened because I'm then yes. just caught up in another incredible flight sequence. Mm-hmm. I mean, when that Gen V or Gen Five plane goes like inverted and goes backwards like that, yeah. <laughs> that part is so awesome. Like, not a... it, you're not even supposed to be rooting for that guy. But you're like, whoa, that was really cool. <laughs> so like you're already kind of caught back up in the spectacle that you don't have enough time to think about. Like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, that part was pretty stupid right there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I guess the other part of the third act that I also don't love is the whole idea of like what they have to blow up. Is it's so confusing? It's like a ra- a uranium thing that is not making nukes, but could make nukes, but we don't know what it's really doing quite yet. It's just in this basin of a valley of like what 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 like why is this a permanent? Th- like why are we blowing this up? And why do we need four right. aircraft to blow it up? Like. Yeah, we need one. It seems to, to me <laughs> yeah. that the country or the area that they're flying has violated sanctions, more right. so. So it's not the matter of like them being like up and running and. So it's a, a uranium enrichment plant. Uh, okay, I guess that's all we're told. But I, I mean, I know you. Can, I, <laughs> that's all you're getting. I, right, but that's what I mean. It's like I'd be. Well, it'd be nice to know exactly why they're risking their sure. lives, and like the dramatic tension would be a little bit more if I knew like. I mean, I don't know, like, it's hard to, like, explain or justify it, this movie existing, you know, so you need a big threat, obviously, but, like, there is a little bit of a, a question of, like, where you can have one plane follow it with a laser so that it could blow it up, and then another plane's going to come and really destroy it. It's a little convoluted in that sense, but, I, I mean, it's, it is. It's, it's picking nits at that point. No, I hear what you're saying. The thing that I would say, just kind of like playing devil's advocate, I think the training sequences do such a great job job of the repetition of hammering home what this mission actually is that like, we're not necessarily caught up as to who or why they're doing it. We're just caught up in the steps of how how they have to do it so they can get home and stay And in fairness to the movie, that is type of what it is to be a soldier, you know, is that you don't know all the answers. You're just given an order and this is what you do. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Another thing I kind of like, we're talking about picking nits real quick. Just one thing that I kind of wanted to hit. I really wasn't a huge fan of killing off ice. I felt like that was done for, I don't know why it was done, but to me, it read as a couple things, right? It read that, okay, either they're killing him off because they're making a sequel. And unfortunately, Val Kilmer is so ill that you can't bank on him being around for the sequels. Right, right. Or you did it because you wanted to have a dramatic showcase for Tom Cruise and why because he's doing and doing a great job at it i just felt like it wasn't needed we already were established that he was sick it was already established that he was sick again when Uh him and his wife him and iceman's wife have that exchange in the kitchen um we can clearly tell visually that he's not doing well i just didn't fully understand why that happened i think it has to be there because 
it's time to let go is a is a very powerful line in this movie but i think for maverick to really grow up and and get past this he has to realize he's not just letting go of goose he's letting go of ice you know and i think ice's death is could be a traumatizing event for maverick in this movie because it's another loss of a dear friend but Mm -hmm. when he's told that like it's okay you've got to let me go it makes him able to cope with that and then move on to that mission afterwards Mm -hmm. in a way that i think if, if ice was just like I'm pretty sick, you know, like right. I might not be around in two months. And when this be like, it adds, it kind of has to be there to make Maverick have that final realization mm-hmm. of like, you've got to push through. And now that I'm gone, now that, you know, ice is gone, Maverick can get out of this life because there's no one left to save him ultimately. And, and more than that, that like, he's the only one left. Like he's the only mm. one capable of doing this. He can't just get bailed out. You know, Ice can't do this. Maverick has to because there has to be more people like him, and he's the only one left from that academy in the first movie. Right. Yeah, I guess maybe it just felt weird to me because then right after that they go into the final mission. It just yeah, and the pacing's a little tough in the second half because we spend like the first hour just getting through their first like training session, and then within the next hour we go through two and a half weeks. Right. Yeah. Just it it seemed a little rushed to me. I don't know. Um, That was my opinion. I'm trying to think. I really don't have anything else as far as big scenes and stuff like that. I would just want to talk about the scene with Ice, though. Uh, oh, I, one, one thing, though, too, real quick before we hop into Ice, just yes. to kind of keep it a little lighter. We missed the best scene of the whole entire movie. The beach scene. Yeah. Come on. Young yeah. Delicious. Come on. Uh, funk, hunky Teller, you know, like, boy, Maron. Friend of the show, longtime listener, <laughs> Miles Teller, just looking like an absolute hunk. I was really glad I kept my Glenn Palace stock for that one scene in particular. I was like, man, my guy could put on weight. Like, look at Katie, him. Katie had to pick my job off the floor. <laughs> I mean, was just, it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. But the ice scene, like, I think it is the emotional weight and heart of this movie in so many ways. And I know there's a lot of talk about what Kilmer can't do physically anymore. But God, he does a tremendous job in that scene. The way he points at the computer – just the way he – like the little motions he does too are just so profound, and he's just incredible in that scene. That hug they exchange seems like a real hug. Yes. Right? It seems like two guys who have known each other for 35 years and, and lived full lives together. Like, yeah, I, I thought that scene was incredible too. He has like one or two actual lines that he speaks, and the rest he's usually using a computer or doing with his eyes. I thought that was great too. Um, do you think he'll get a supporting nod maybe? I don't no. think he has enough screen time. Yeah, I, I think as great as he is, I think he does too little and in, in not as much time Yeah, to not warrant it. But just like, I can't imagine he gets it, but that's just me. Mm-hmm. And that scene to me felt kind of metatextual with Tom Cruise too. Like the world needs needs Maverick. The world needs like big new movies that are like not about superheroes. <laughs> like I was kind of, I was looking at that a little bit more about Tom Cruise than um, just about, Member Iceman, about, yeah, 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 yeah. Talking about Iceman, and there is that metatextuality kind of code in the entire movie of like Maverick isn't just getting older, you know. Tom Cruise is getting older, and, and what does right. that mean for his career, and where does he go from here, and like, mm-hmm. what is life after you're the action star and you're the biggest person on the planet? Right, right. I agree. So I want to talk about Kaczynski a little bit because I don't feel like we gave him enough love and credit. Um, he doesn't really have a like deep filmography um i'll just run through it real quick and we can go yes or no if you've seen it and if you liked it tron legacy i saw that did you yeah i did i did i like um it. it's been a while uh i remember thinking the cgi jeff bridges was very weird uh i yeah. still do 
but I think in terms of like a sequel to another old film, it could be a lot worse than it could have been. And I think like you launch some pretty solid careers there with Olivia Wilde and Garrett Hedlund, and uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it could be worse. Uh, Oblivion, which we talked about before, which is kind of hit or miss, but it's based on his yep. own graphic novel, which is pretty sweet. Um, and then we go to Only the Brave, and this is where I kind of think it, it kind of starts to begin. The um, authoritative master of their craft, um, dangerous mission guy thing. You know what I mean? I, I feel like this was uh, the homework assignment before Top Gun Maverick. You know what I mean? Does that and a Miles Teller piece too. You know, Miles like, Teller uh, piece he'd work together. Um, Singer, who we had mentioned he worked with on uh, Jennifer Connelly as well. Jennifer Connelly. Um, he does have kind of that thing too, where he does like to circle back to like people he's worked with before. James Picking is in Only the Brave and in uh, Top Gun Maverick as well. So yeah, he does kind of have that thing where um, he likes to collaborate with a with a core group of actors. So I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but just some of the things that he's trying to do as far as innovation with cameras um, and his background as far as not being cinema. He's an architect uh, originally. He reminds me of James Cameron a little bit, right? James Cameron is somebody who is not only a great storyteller, he's a great technician. And when I watch some of those movies, like Only the Brave or Top Gun, it feels like a not only somebody who's trying to tell an ambitious story, but trying to do it in a new and creative way. So he seems to me to be somebody who's trying to push the technical side forward. I know that's not always the most exciting thing for people to talk about, but that's really kind of the stuff that Jones is me when I go to the movies. Everyone's like, wow, that scene is so sad. And you're just like, oh my God, did you see that shot composition? Oh. Yeah, it's, it's that's yeah. me. I mean, I get the same you know, jokes at me. So, you know, I, I understand your pain. Uh, but he really is the unsung hero of this like entire movie. Like, you can easily point at, like, oh, Teller and, and Cruz and the planes and the action, but you don't really factor in the fact that Kaczynski's the guy who like masterminds us all. Mm-hmm. And I think in the hands of a far lesser director, this movie's not nearly as engaging or emotionally, you know, compelling. And, and I just think he did a terrific job at really capturing so much stuff. And right. I mean, like, <laughs> I don't know what his future is from here, but like, it, this is, mm. this is a heck of a boost to like go from making uh taco bell and whitey gaga music videos to top <laughs> yeah yeah quite the ascension yeah. uh didn't he i don't know if he directed but he's working on spiderhead or had worked on spider yes I that's believe. out that's out i believe yeah is that on netflix i believe it is yeah i haven't seen so, yeah. it but i i've heard decent things yeah i really don't know where he goes but he seems to be somebody um if not hitting the target is at least consistent in his work um and i think he did strike a perfect balance. I, like I said, I felt like only the brave was the homework assignment before this. Only the brave kind of has a little too much of the uh, brothers in arms camaraderie and it yeah. kind of goes a little too far into that cheese. And, but it is a very emotional and like engaging movie. This was like the perfect balance of the drama and the action and pushing the innovation forward for me as far as his movie so far. Um, but yeah, I really don't know where he goes from here. It seems like he's very... Um, like scientific with the way he takes on projects there has to be something that like is challenging technically before he kind of goes forward with it I do fear that he's going to get swallowed up by the like the studio system in in a bad way I mean this is just kind of the fear with every like filmmaker that kind of comes out now and it's like oh interesting is like it's true hopefully hopefully studios don't realize he's interesting you know and then take up what he has well yeah and then like you think about it right look at kind of marvel strategy that is their strategy ryan coogler 
Yeah. They kind of picked him out of obscurity. There's a ton of other ones. I mean, Ta- Takai Watiti. I don't know if I'm saying that name right. <laughs> Probably <didn't>. butchered it. <laughs> Taika Watiti. Taika Watiti. I'm sorry. Taika. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm just Fine. winging it, man. Again, I was up till 2 a.m. <laughs> uh, another person like wasn't really a household name until the Marvel thing. There's a whole bunch of other examples of that. And I'm missing a bunch. And there's also actors that you could pull from that pool too. But I worry about that too. It's just like, is he the next guy that Netflix says, hey, here's $380 million, go make Gray Man 2, right? It's just kind of scary. I, like this I Gray Man might be good. Yeah, I don't I don't want to try it. I don't want to find yeah, out. Please don't, Joseph. Um, he's a if big you're dog. listening. Yeah, I know you are. <laughs> That's one of my favorite bits consistently is to pretend that like someone who's mm-hmm. definitely not like knows who you are is just like here. Oh, we're, like, we're, we're riding that to the end. Like, yeah, Joseph, like, I know you're shy. You don't want to be on the podcast, but, like, you know, hopefully we don't do silly projects in the future. Yeah. Come on. No, no, no. Really. Like, everybody wants your insight. <laughs> you're special. We love you. Um, and, like, you, like, kind of, kind of come back to reality when somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, you've been talking to yourself for, like, 10 minutes. And I'm like, no, I'm no, not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but going from uh, one discography to another, it's not for Decky Decider. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to Tom Cruise. Tommy Cruise. Like, I'll be honest, when I was going through this, I was like, my God, this dude's like worked with the murderer's row of directors. This here. is the hardest one we're going to have for a while, I think. Mm. Because the movies we've – I don't want to spoil anything for our, you know – massive audience or anything but like we've had we have a, a, like sorry a jake schedule. don't want to spoil anything for you <laughs> we have a rough um, outline of where we're going to go for the next movie so i don't want to spoil anything but this is the toughest one that we've had in a while um but yeah do you want me to start this conversation or you want to you want to hop in here i just want to like note so he works on we'll kind of go through this later but like the amount of directors he's worked with kind of like i said it's it's francis ford coppola it's Martin Scorsese, it's Paul Thomas Anderson, Brian De Palma, Tony Scott, and Ridley Scott. Uh, he writes; he's within an Aaron Sorkin written movie. Um, who am I forgetting here, real quick? Christopher McQuarrie, who we've talked about. Our Barry boy Levinson. Kizitsky, Barry Levinson. Like he has touched on pretty much every major, I would say, director that's really influenced pop culture the last oh, thirty that. years. Plus, <laughs> Steven Spielberg a couple times too. Like, yeah. Like this dude has, has Did you worked. Say Kubrick. Kubrick, yeah, that's another yeah. one I missed. Like, it just goes to show you that like we we remember Tom Cruise, and I think he will be remembered as the action hero. But this dude, when he was really getting into it, he touched every corner. Uh, Oliver Stone too, another one. Like, yeah, yeah. Like anywhere you could go of a director of an actor, be like, I want to work with blank. He worked with them basically. I would say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would say uh, Michael Mann, we missed as well. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say almost. All of those roles that he chose or those directors too are some of his strongest and best work, not only because he's working with superior talent, but he is actually bringing something else to the table and bringing something out of them. You know, like there's something to Vincent in Collateral that is not in any other performance. Like, yeah. But, I, no, I was just watching Collateral again this weekend, honestly. And like, you are right. Like, like there is something in his eyes of like, we talk like Shang-Chi and Sun Tzu, like, he thinks he's above it all, or that that's like, Michael Mann. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he thinks he's a philosopher of some kind. And the way he talks about like the death and like what does it matter if I kill these people you don't know, where he feels above it, but he's a murderer. 
And like that's a far interesting more dynamic than just being like, oh yes, whatever. Who, who cares, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. No, I agree. I think that movie's great, and it's one of his only roles where he really is the villain. Um, he's almost always the good guy. So I thought that was a that's one of my favorite roles by him. But let's get into decade decider. We're getting off track here. Yeah. Uh, let's start off with the eighties. We go <laughs> right out of the gate here. The Outsiders, just you know, <laughs> little little supporting role with. Francis Ford Coppola, which is one of his most underrated works, in my opinion. What a year for him, by the way. Yeah, 83. All the right moves, risky business, The Outsiders. I mean, he's a fresh face. I think 81 is one of his first movies, something with something love. I can't remember the title. Um, it's bothering me now. Uh, you can click on his RDB right there if you're really need to. Uh, it is Losing It, Taps, Endless Love. Endless Love, yeah. That's like one of the first Tom Cruise movies that I really remember. So then we go to 86, we got Top Gun, which we've talked to death. The Color of Money, which is a really underrated Scorsese movie. Uh, got Newman his first Oscar, I believe, too. We go to Cocktail, uh, Take It or Leave It, and Born on the Fourth of July. I only this put is a cocktail. movie I want to talk about. Yeah, I only put Cocktail because it's kind of its cultural touchstone, but whatever. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And to be honest with you, Risky Business and All the Right Moves don't really do much for me either. But they're and, important but in the story they're of important. Yeah, Of course. But this movie, I think, is really pivotal, Born on the Fourth of July. Because this is the first time where we see that Tom Cruise is a serious actor and like takes, takes this as a craft. It's pretty harrowing. It's a great movie. But um, yeah, that's one of his best performances. Uh, I believe that's his first Oscar nom too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. And then uh, we go into the 90s where we have A Few Good Men where he just re- reads one of the best scripts of all time. <laughs> No big deal. Yeah. And again, like we're we're going through this, and like <laughs> he's already worked with Tony Scott, Francis Ford Coppola, Oliver Stone. Yeah. And, and before he's sort of, what, like thirty something, like right? He might be thirty. Yes. A few good men. Uh, the Firm, which is a solid movie. Mission Impossible with De Palma, which I enjoy. I think that might be the best one in the series. Then we go to Jerry Maguire, Eyes Wide Shut, personal favorite of mine. One for the perverts. Uh, and then for Magnolia. us to watch together, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we go to Magnolia, which is another pivotal point I want to talk about. This is where the roles that require a little more start to go away. Yeah. This, this is where I think he got nominated for Supporting Actor. He didn't win for Born on the Fourth of July. He didn't win Best Actor for Jerry Maguire. The, uh, a Few Good Men, I'm not sure if he was nominated for he that. He wasn't, but- no. Yeah, he probably should have been nominated for that. I think at this point, he kind of gives the Academy the finger and says, okay, well, I am already the most bankable dude in the world. Now it's time to double down on that. Yeah, I would say I would say that's definitely true when you just look at like what he does after that. Is I don't think he's made a drama-drama sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could argue maybe War of the Worlds or Minority Report, but those I don't consider – those are genre films, really. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's not really be tackling a, a – a hard role the way he was in the, in the early nineties and eighties. And it's just kind of like, it's sad. Cause like he does have such potential. And I, I do wonder if it is kind of what you said, where I think we're going to see the Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Gosling now too, where it's like, mm. okay, I tried the critical thing, you know, it worked. I was successful. I got the roles. I got the money, but I'm getting older. My ability to sign top dollar and do action movies, even if they're just action movies is running out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if Cruz kind of got lodged in that state, and that's why he's always been there for the most part of our lives. But I don't know. I mean, I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal just signed for for the Roadhouse reboot, 
you know, yeah. like <laughs> not the road dogs podcast. Don't, yeah. don't get it mistaken. Anybody. We don't want to be sued, <laughs> but like this dude was in uh, nightcrawler, like in 2014 prisoners, prisoners. Yeah. And now he's going to, to roadhouse, which in all fairness, does have a pretty solid cast around him. But like, it just kind of goes to show you that as the actors get older, there is that pivot to like, I need to make money now because I yeah. probably have a family as you get older too. So yeah, it's definitely a conscious decision, right? It's not just him being pigeonholed into these roles. He's pursuing them. Right. Because he goes right from Magnolia to Mission Impossible too. He could have gotten out of yeah. that and been like, I don't want to do a franchise, but he chose to. Right. I also think he really enjoys making those movies. Like, I do too. As I he think should. he lives for those movies. Yeah. Um, so we go into the 2000s here, which a little bit hit or miss. One movie you didn't include in here that I was kind of surprised, War of the Worlds, 2004 as well. I really enjoy. Um, I only put it because like, it's like, okay, Spielberg, you know, I think. Yeah. But it's it, it's it's B it's B plus Spielberg. I agree. Yeah, which is still pretty good, but yeah, which is like <laughs> most directors A plus. Um, so then we go, uh, we skip the head there a little bit, but we go Mission Impossible two thousand uh, number two, which is not good. Uh, I oh. watched it recently. Just a really cool move to have James Wan direct that movie, especially at that time. And I think that goes to show, you know, Tom Cruise always wants to work with like innovators in the industry mm-hmm. and people who kind of like challenge him and bring something new to the table. Unfortunately, that movie really doesn't work on any level. Um, right. Then we go to Minority Report, which is a really good movie and has kind of, I think, gone on to have a little bit more of a critical, respect, respectable reputation. The Last Samurai, uh, no thanks. What? Flatterable. I like that movie. Really? It's cultural appropriation of the wazoo. So long. Like, it, you, <laughs> I don't have a problem watching movies that are long. You know me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, when they're like that, uh, no. That's fair. Just, That's fair. That movie is bogged down by its runtime, in my opinion. Um, Collateral, which we touched on. Mission Impossible 3, good movie, underrated. Um, not not great, but mm-hmm. pretty good. This is a weird one right here, and I kind of want to know how you feel about Tropic Thunder. How do you feel about that one? It's it's one that I think he really needed to make, because as you look at this list, he is kind of very more into just like the plain action star. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of easy in that time frame to get lost in that role. And it just get pigeonholed into it, kind of like we said. And he has. But I think when you look at what he's doing until that point, I think Mission Impossible 3 is a pretty good movie with um, Philip Seymour Hoffman as the villain, right? Yeah, it's basically the Philip Seymour Hoffman movie. Yeah, but like yeah. that's what I'm kind of saying. Like He gets overshadowed here, and he starts to like – even Collateral, which is a great movie, he's playing second lead. He's co-lead. Right, yeah. And he's kind of fading a little bit. And I think Tropic Thunder was his way of acknowledging his corniness. And also you got to remember this is around the time of the Oprah incident. I want to say. Mm. So I think at that point, he has to shatter the image that he's created. Not maybe the the roles that he picks, but more just like, he has to be in on the joke a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think Tropic Thunder was like a fun thing to do. It's not a like demanding thing to do. And it let him flex a little bit in a different way that he had it before. And if you look at where he goes from after this, Ghost Protocol is really good in, in 2011. Rock of Ages is terrible. But Edge of Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Rogue Nation, the next two we we won't mention because they're awful, Mummy and American Made, but then Mission Impossible Fallout. That's a pretty solid hit ratio if we're just looking at that. And I really think Tropic Thunder is uh, important there. I agree with you. I think Tropic Thunder was also kind of a a good PR move for him, right? Yes. How you were kind of saying, a little bit in and on the joke, kind of some turmoil in his personal life, which I really don't want to get into on this podcast. I'm not really interested. Well, yeah, we might end up in a van, so let's not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, uh, <laughs> then we go into 2020s. Top Gun Maverick, just absolute goat. And then two more Mission Impossibles, which we're getting sometime in 23 and 24, right? Yes. Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah, which I'm 
I'm going to be there opening day for both of those movies. I will too. I will never forget seeing uh, one of them in Gettysburg before we drove like eight hours back to New Hampshire, me and my friends. Mm. It was just uh, maybe a waste of time. I don't know, but we had time to kill. So guess what? I did it and we had a good time. Was it Fallout? I think so. Yeah, it must have been. Oh, you guys won then. Oh, yeah. That's one with Cavill, I believe. Yep. Um, Yeah, no, that's a good movie, but I do wonder – all of those movies now are just like, the government's turned on you, Ethan Hunt. You got to – there's a rogue <laughs> rogue enterprise, and you got to shut them down. And uh, it's just like, yep, they'll do it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's fair. But, yeah. I mean, they're coming to an end, right? So there there is a finish line. There is a, there is a goal in sight. So I'm really excited to see where those movies go. I am too. I mean, they're, they're great theater and great popcorn stuff, and you got to appreciate them for that. Yeah, and I don't think we really really talked about the Mission Impossible movies too much, but just real quick, I think in Fallout you can see some of the seeds of the um, cinematography that will be used in Top Gun as well mm-hmm. during the during the final uh, helicopter flight scene. Well, even see. the the Halo jump, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then I think also I'm not remember if that's a mo- right movie or not, I think it's Rogue Nation with the airplane, where mm-hmm. you do see him continually push the limits of what you can show on camera. That is practical. Yep. Um, yep. And it, it like I, the behind the scenes stuff of the Halo jump is so astounding to see him jump and just see this guy like with the cold in the camera as he's falling. It's, it's just crazy. Like he's the evil Knievel of of actors. It's I think insane. he wants to die. I, okay, so <laughs> yeah, I think he really been, might want to die on camera. I've been reading a Teddy Roosevelt book and I finished it. And Teddy always seemed to be a person that was like, I want to die in war because it is a noble mm-hmm. thing. It is what I you know spent my whole life kind of doing. And if you're gonna die, that's the way to do it. I think Cruz wants to die on a movie because that is what his whole life has been. And, and I kind of just like view it like that where this is all he is. You know, I think that that line of like being a test pilot or naval aviator is, is kind of Tom Cruise as well. Being a movie star isn't what he does. It's what he is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And like, I think he keeps doing these things because he wants to be a spectacle, but also I don't think it's a death wish, but it is kind of a thing of like, I want to keep pushing at it and I don't care what it costs. I've already made my money and I'm happy with what I've done with my life. Um, I think that's pretty solid for Tom Cruise, but let's decide the decade. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> I think it's the nineties. It's hard. I don't know. I mean, what, what is the, what is the competition here? 2010s? Cause I would say the two thousands is pretty solid, but there's not enough hits to be like, I just think the things that I, part of me, like, wants to take the 2020s and see what those other two Mission Impossible movies are. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, but it's also hard to take a decade that includes American Made and The Mummy and Rock of Ages. Like, those are three not like, oh yeah, that wasn't bad. Those are three stinkers that just don't work <laughs> at all. So it's kind of tough to take the 2010s. Um, as far as buzz and cachet, I kind of want to take the 80s. I mean... Go for it. I think. I mean, that's where 80s. you watch the movie star, Tom Cruise. I, I think the yeah. 90s where you watch the the actor and, and the auteur. Actor Cruise. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he gets two of his noms in, in the 90s. So I, I think I'll go there because just the hit list is like, yeah, I don't have every movie on this list, obviously. We're just going to mention the, the highlights. But like, is there one bad movie among this list that we have here from the 90s? No, you're right. You're right. I, Whereas I, you I, can I, say, you know, sure, Risky yes. Business and, and Top Gun and, and, you know, a couple other ones are just like, and like Cocktail's not a good movie. No. But whatever. Not. Yeah. All right. So... I don't think we have too many leads this week. I think we just did uh, Kilmer and Connolly for the other two. So let's go over to Jennifer Connolly. I want to discuss her a little bit. So she starts off with 
one of the best directors of all time, kind of like we were talking about with Tom Cruise, uh, Sergio Leone's epic Once Upon a Time in America, which I would like to do on this podcast at some point. That's, that's a great movie. Uh, Labyrinth, which is the David Bowie fantasy movie, if I'm not mistaken, which I've never right. seen. Uh, this is going to be hard to do because I haven't seen a lot of these, but there's enough to talk about. Uh, Career Opportunities, 1991, The Rocketeer, 91, Higher Learning, solid movie. Uh, that she does Dark City, which never heard of. No, neither. Then we touch on probably one of her best roles, um, and one that she won. Oh no, she won for A Beautiful Mind, right? Which is weird. I, th- I think yeah. that should be flipped, but that's just I me. I do too. Which is a really harrowing performance in Requiem for a Dream. Have you seen that? Uh, I think I've seen parts of it. I haven't seen the full thing because it's just it's quite heavy. Tough hang, tough hang. But yeah, she's, <laughs> she's phenomenal in it. Everybody's phenomenal in that movie. Jared Leto's absolutely amazing in it too. Um, before his method acting became crazy. A Beautiful Mind, where she wins her first Oscar uh, in 2001, which is weird. I don't think that's aged well as far as a movie, but I haven't seen it and I don't know. It's good. It's a good movie. She's good in it. Okay. Then we go to Hall 2003, which I rewatched recently. You're going you're gonna to laugh at it, but I actually like it. And I think it was a little ahead of its time. I enjoyed that movie. It's me, Nick Nolte. I'm the Hulk's dad. I beat him. That's why he's angry all the time. It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> dude, I, I love these accents today, dude. These are all over the place. <laughs> the Ooh. Nick Nolte one's pretty solid, actually. <laughs> then we go to Blood Diamond. Which is pretty rough hang. <laughs> it's me, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Blood Diamond. <laughs> the day the earth stood still. Brew! <laughs> Uh, Noah, which we're not going to talk about. No, this is Spider Man Homecoming, Only the Brave, Alita Battle Angel, which we're also not going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> this and is then, tough. This is misses here. Yeah. And then Top the Maverick. So her career is a little different. Uh, it seems a little more skewed. Not a lot. And that might be because um, in the unfortunately 80s, 90s, early 2000s, even, there wasn't a lot of meaty roles for women, I feel. Absolutely. Um, and when she was already not like a, a leading actress at the time but i do think she does have this chance yeah but she does she, have this moment though from like yeah sorry i keep, keep cutting you off but like no, it's okay we're wrecking for a dream pollock a beautiful mind that is a great like <laughs> don't forget hulk uh, but even little children is, is a terrific movie and i don't i don't know if it was like you know she mm. kept busy raising her kids or having a family or she wanted to do other things or what happened but like I'm glad pop culture is kind of coming back around on her as a talented actress. And, like, man, like, she, she's a terrific leading actress, I think, when she really, really gets into, like, a good role. Um, unfortunately, there's not a ton even today. But, I, I, you know, I hope to see, like, a late comeback. I hope she's just not stuck in, like, Disney Plus TV shows where she plays the mob, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope this movie was a, was a showcase to kind of put her more stuff because I'm totally down for her. I think she's great. Uh, and I will always ride for Hulk. <laughs> We're going to get Kim Hank with him and Ang Lee in, 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 in a Zoom call. They just leave and see what happens. Just see what they talk about. <laughs> it starts out at Dwarf This. I think that podcast like, oh, will blow up. Ruin her own show. <laughs> it's the 2000s, so, yeah. So yeah. what decade she are you taking with it. her? I think it's quite clearly the 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, I agree. That's mm. a pretty easy one. So that one. That's chalk, as they say. Let's move on to Val Kilmer. This one is an interesting one to talk about as an actor, too. Um, do you want to lead this one? Because this is your boy. You really like Val. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know as much, but I would say that Val has three decades. It's the 80s and 90s and the 2000s. Everything after Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in 2005 mm-hmm. is just not, it's not good. 
Um, there's a lot of dreck yeah. and there's a lot of just like VOD. And I don't know why that is and we're not going to speculate, but it is like, I think, so when we look at the 80s with Val, like slow start, but Top Gun in, in 86 yeah. is like his second or third role, I want to say. And, and to just explode off of that as ice and just be so charismatic and like the few scenes that I've seen of that. And then to go from, this is a great run of the 90s though, like just not in terms of like what he made, but just the talent he's working with here. The Doors, Thunderheart, True Romance, Tombstone, Batman Forever, which, hey, you got to make, got to pay the bills. Uh, and then Heat, like, like that is some premier talent. Like we talk about the talent that Cruz worked with, but that is uh, a Tarantino script, uh, a Oliver Stone movie. Tony working Scott. Working with, you know, <laughs> Michael Mann, like Tony Scott, like that is yeah, some, some fire stuff incredible. there from, from Big Old Val. That's Doc Holliday. Yeah. Oh, and Heat, like he. I think she got nominated for Heat too. The bank's worth the money, man. <laughs> the bank's worth the risk. I need the money, money, man. I cannot wait for the Heat. I need episode. the money. I think it's gonna be like five hours long. I'm so excited. Um, and then in the 2000s, you have a movie called Spartan, which I, I saw got good reviews, and the Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is really underrated. Um, if we're gonna talk about like where do action movies today hail a lot of the genesis from Shane Black, not just because of Lethal Weapon and, and everything else, but like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is your prototype of the buddy cop in the 2000s, which then is a real, 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 oh my God, I got your syndrome now. Sorry, man. Uh, a career revival for both, you know, um, Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr. and Shane Black. Uh, I was about to say that too, and Shane Black, yeah. Like everyone kind of like makes a resurgence in this movie. And he's so good as a comedic foil to, to Downey as Gay Perry. <laughs> and they're just some terrific bits. And like, I, I, it's a shame that, you know, Val and Health hasn't really cooperated with him, but like, mm. I, I think Val is a, is a terrific actor that not only got, a, not always got a time to shine. And I think he's so good as Jim Morrison in the doors and, and, yeah. you know, one of the guys that just kind of faded in and a real oddball character. If you look at like his personal life with like, yes, huge Mark Twain fan, he's, he's played Mark Twain in two things. Um, he was in Jane Son of Bob Reboot. <laughs> <laughs> I like Jane um, Son of Bob Reboot. Let's not talk about that one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, Val's a great, great actor, and it's, you know, more of him. I mean, we probably won't, but I hope people appreciate him as, as time goes on. Yeah, I think there's a timeline where he's just as big as Tom Cruise, and I think some of the choices mm-hmm. we're talking about, I really think he was kind of maybe following in his footsteps with the people he chooses to work with and the projects he takes on. Um but was somebody who was really committed to the acting process and like a method actor and would like immerse himself in his roles, um, which oftentimes, unfortunately, did lead to like some confrontations. I guess he could be a difficult person to work with from things that I've read and heard um, from insiders that I hang out with in the industry <laughs> about Val Kilmer. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, just I mean, he played Batman. Like, like, that's not like. That movie's terrible, though. It is, but like, that just goes to show you that like. That was huge in, was. in the nineties at one point, and and like getting Batman is just like a token thing. Like, yeah, like he's replacing Clooney, I believe, at that point. Like that's or he, vice versa, one of the two. But mm-hmm. and I think he was pretty solid as Batman. Like it's no, been a while since I watched that movie, but but he's not one of the problems with it exactly. He's a good Bruce Wayne. Hmm. I think it was hard for anybody to be Batman back then. Absolutely, I don't Especially think anybody had the grasp. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody had the grasp of. Uh, how to portray comic characters. I still don't really think there's a, a really firm grasp on a, on the screen uh, because I don't think that those stories are necessarily made for the screen. That's why they're comic books. Um, 
Yeah, but we're going to go with the 90s, I think, for Kilmer. Easy. Pretty chalk week. Uh, oh, would have yeah. liked to talk about Tyler more. I think in, in, in 30 years, the Glenn Powell category is going to be really rich. It's going to be know, rich. Like, yeah, when Kim Hazel and Ang Lee, they'll have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Yeah, what are you? I think that he's really good and everybody wants some. And I think that's a touchstone for his uh, career there, Ang. What do you think? Question. Oh, okay, I was going to say question for you. Is that, no, no, no. Please don't do an Ang Lee accent. I was going to say, is that who but, you thought? I was going to say, is that what you thought Ang Lee sounded like? I was confused. No, no, that's Kim Hankel. We're just okay. like, yeah, no. Cool. Like, I, I've, I've studied some Kim Hankel. <laughs> Jeff Bridges, Kim Hankel. Like, I like it. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a Jeff Bridges. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, I guess we're moving on to the, the closer Kim of the show. Yeah, this might be the last time we have have Kim. You've expressed doubt about Kim's corner, and uh, it's understandable. <laughs> the dear leader isn't everyone's favorite. Um, it's a, it's a tough hang. It's 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 not really it's it's not fully relatable. It's a lot. Of, you said you've done a lot of research about Kim, and it's not all great. It's not just like oh, yeah, I, you know, silly me. I thought it was just this guy was a was a cinephile. I didn't really know much about him outside of that. Um, and I read his Wikipedia page, and there yeah. was just some stuff that I was a little. A little disturbed by it, a little perturbed. You know, it seems like kind of a real, real jerk. Yeah, I, you know, I avoid that. You know, personally, I, I, I choose not to believe all, everything they wrote <laughs> That's about. Fair Kim. enough. Um, but it's for that reason we're probably going to scrap Kim's corner after this week, and, and that's okay. Um, maybe he'll make resurgences here and there, but for now we're gonna mm. we're gonna let Kim's corner rest. But not before we finish this today. <laughs> not, not, not on the day where we. Not on the day where I think his. I think this is North Korea. This movie. I've read it. I ran. I've read a couple other things, but like I, I was texting you about this. You got Russian planes from the Cold War, check. North Korea would have those. We got, you know, nuclear desires, big check right there. Um, snowy mountains, check. North Korea's got a bunch of those because they're right by the border with Russia. Like, like they're talking about Iran. Where, where does Iran have snowy mountains like we see in Top Gun? Like, there's an ice lake in, in, like, in that movie. What about Iran? Come on. Come on. This is goof. Like this is definitely North Korea. Am I am I crazy? I don't I don't think you're crazy, uh, but I also wouldn't be surprised if the writers were just like, look, just make it as amb- amb- ambiguous as possible. Like, I mean, they did the right call here, absolutely, because like that's how you avoid anything. But... I also feel like the pilots are too big to be North Korean. They look European in stature. Well, you know. <laughs> Um, just, we're trying to say about Kim's country. No, man. I'm not saying anything about it. I'm just saying that they're not okay, good, really good. known for, for, for being tall. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not, not vertically challenged, but just not being, you know, overly tall. <laughs> is, is the first movie, is the first Top Gun in North Korea? Is that who they fight? I don't even remember who they fight. I don't know if they tell you. Okay. Um, um, anyway, all right. Well, Top Gun just doesn't exist in a land with countries, apparently. <laughs> um, do you think Kim, do you think Kim watched the first Top Gun? I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I did too. Because they all like, like, you know, a lot of these crazy cats. They love the American cinema for some reason or the other. I don't know why, but because we do it the best. All their directors are dead. <laughs> USA, USA. <laughs> um, I think you think you would have liked. You think you would have liked Maverick? Uh, I think they would have had a really good conversation. I think him and Mav could have got could have got up in the air. <laughs> I think they could have worked some stuff out. Um, like- like their planes are hovering in the sky somehow, they're just standing on top of them as like they're like two thousand feet above the. No, air. I'm saying like, like get up in the air in a plane, like you know, let Mav fly, fly Kim around. Maybe change his perspective. I like the idea of like you know how like you have Phoenix and Bob mm-hmm. in the one plane. It's just Kim and Maverick <laughs> and, and one of them. <laughs> Kim, what's my six? This is why we can't do the segment. 
I know, but that's why I'm enjoying it I right know. now. Let it ride. Broncos country, let's ride. <laughs> I bet you can relate to Gwen Pallas Hangman. I really do. Like, mm. I don't know if it's perfect, but like the whole – actually, I don't know about that because Kim was a country man. You know, he's about the people, for the people. Um, and Hangman is pretty selfish. Maybe he saw himself as Mav as like – man and in the world that's leaving him behind but still needs to teach the world a few things i granted kim's what he thought he had to teach people probably not great but but the the, the point still stands that i think kim maybe and as an older man as an older gentleman mm. later in his life mm. you know i think he might relate yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna take a pick this week as, as to who I okay think that's fine wow way to play sweden okay wow <laughs> great we'll do cheese corner next week maybe john ham john ham's character. <laughs> i always see him as the dick in these movies Ham's not great in this movie. I just want to say he's like just doing John Ham. Well, let's just talk about Ham real quick. I mean, give me your Ham thoughts. Give me your Ham thoughts. I think he's pretty bad in this movie too. I think he's doing he's the same great. exact thing that he's been doing since the town. I am the te- I'm the teetotaling <laughs> dick who makes sure that everybody follows yeah. the rules. And then at the end, I'm going to get like absolutely cut. Oh yeah. Top Gun Maverick. Maverick blows the course away and like shatters his stupid ass idea to do it in four minutes. <laughs> He just never gets – he never gets to – he always takes the L from the lead. He's just like, uh, okay. <laughs> well, if you say so, man, fine. I, I got I to gotta respect you. It's like, yeah, that's right, you stupid idiot, John Hamm. You beautiful idiot. All right, Josh. You beautiful, mm-hmm. dumb idiot, you. <laughs> Let's close this bad boy out. We've talked long enough. This was a great episode. Um, I enjoyed it. Subscribe, rate, comment. Tune in next week as we talk about the nice guys.